0: Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman. This is episode 226. My thanks as always to Tea Leaf Tea and Yesty Boys. This is a conversation with Eamon Mara. He's a Wellington comedian and writer, well Wellington based, he grew up in Christchurch. Uh, I had never met him, um, and, but I loved his book, his, his recent first novel. It's an episodic novel. It's essentially a collection of short stories that have been grouped together as a novel. They speak to each other they are about the same character. Uh, that's called 2,000 feet above worry level. It's an a, a, a impressive piece of writing um, that is really about uh, anxiety and depression and living with those things and and, 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 and seeking a, a redemption when you're in your 20s and you've uh, you've lost your way and you don't know what you're doing and uh, you're just trying to make it You keep head above water. Uh, some of it's based on his life. Um, and some of it is complete fiction the way fiction is Uh, he had done the masters in creative writing course um, and this this is essentially the 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 product the end result of that Um, i had followed him on twitter and knew who he was but i hadn't really as i said never met him and i hadn't seen his comedy work apart from a few uh, little snippets, YouTube clips, and 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 some mentions of him being a good comedian. So that was the thing he first got into was developing stand-up comedy shows. And he's had a little break from that, but is returning to it. So we had a big conversation about growing up in Christchurch and experiencing the earthquakes, moving to Wellington, um, his his connection with writing and comedy and how he got involved in those things and of course as happens when you get two people together that are interested in comedy and music and writing we do branch off to talk about movies and music and tv and things like that as well. Uh, It was a pretty big uh, and deep chat for two people that had just met I really enjoyed this and I hope you do too this is me talking with Wellington writer and comedian Eamon Mara. So we're just gonna have a chat, and I, I I don't know you. We don't know each other. We've just met. Yeah. But um, I've been aware of you for a while. But I'm saying that I haven't actually seen any of your shows. I've seen oh, yeah. I've seen clips of things, yeah. and I know what you've. But I, I I guess um, we'll talk about the book, which I loved. But I want to get a sense of, of how you've how you've come into this world doing this stuff. How long have you been in Wellington?
1: I moved here in uh, beginning of 2012. Mm-hmm. So I was from Christchurch and. Yeah, I stuck around for about a year after the earthquakes, and then felt like that was enough. And
0: left. right, okay, so you experienced it, <laughs> and yeah, yeah. Then it was, went, I was I'm there, done. I'm out.
1: Was flatting in a pretty shitty flat that was sort of falling apart and continued to fall apart. Yeah, God. after the quakes, and then yeah,
0: moved up to Wellington. So you you grew up there, yep. in that in that neck of the woods. So um, when the quakes hit, it was what you know, like as awful as it was. People that were there, you just that's just the thing that's happening to you in your space. We all, what I'm trying to get at is we all sort of instantly move to the tragedy of the situation because we're not, you know, our daily lives aren't changed.
1: Yeah, I think that was the, the big difference between being there and, and hearing about it is like, lots of people even say the quake, like the earthquake, they think of the February 22nd yes. one, but although that was huge because that was the one that like... Mm. you know closed off the city Mm. and and brought down the most buildings like the biggest thing for me was like for you know over a year living in a yes from september through you know when i left living in this city that was moving every day there was you weren't sure if there's gonna be another big one or not, and like the sort of the life-changing thing wasn't the single event it was the way that Mm. the whole city just like instantly changed yeah yeah the and there was yeah.
0: there was that big one, and was it September or yeah. before the, the February one? That yeah. was that was the first massively significant one, right? Yeah, that was big enough.
1: That was big, and then there was a really big one on Boxing Day, That's and then right. another one yeah. on February. So, like, yeah, by the time the February one came around, there was already yes, you know, you're was, already used to living with earthquakes, like with panic and like yeah. I, I don't really think that there was a day that didn't have a um. That didn't have a sort of significant quake from um mm. from September through to yeah, you know June the next year,
0: and I didn't go. I mean, i I've never spent that much time in Christchurch. I think I spent a week there once, uh, or maybe twice. I've spent a week there, and I've obviously popped down a few times. But but really, in recent years, I didn't grow. I didn't spend any time there growing up, and um, I can't remember how long it was after the earthquake. But obviously, it wasn't a key destination to get to. It was, it was like, this is awful. This is tragic. And also, I'm glad I don't have any reason to be visiting there anytime soon. But when I did go down there, and I think it was probably like, you know, 2014 or 15, I still had that feeling flying in of like, well, what are we going to experience today? And that's someone that's been about as sheltered from that space whilst living in New Zealand as you could be.
1: Yeah, and still, like... You know the earthquake is still a significant thing in, mm. in, in that city. Like you, if you like, I go there, yeah, you know, you, every year for for a bit, and you know it's still buildings are still come down, roadworks are still around, still
0: noticing new you know new changes to like new the, the way yeah. the city's still adapting. I take it,
1: yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah, I um, and so you so you moved to technically the most earthquake prone city, yeah. in the country like and did you have a fear around that or uh, was it just like anywhere's better
1: not really at the time I didn't really Mm. think about it but it was um funny like moving to I moved to a house on like near the top of Mount Vic and uh just like the wind would shake it constantly I didn't realize how you know I had a you know trauma from the earthquakes until like experiencing things that weren't earthquakes in Wellington and feeling that sort of sense of fear and things as well but then you know, earthquakes did hit here, and I think there's one in 2013, like quite a big one in 2013, and the one
0: right. in 2016. Yeah, yeah. yeah, there was that one where it's sort of about 2 o'clock or something, and it yeah. kind of shut businesses down. Like there was some yeah. some, some, some panic, you know, which uh, which Cantabrians might just chuckle at. But in the moment, it was freaky enough for people to put a plan into place and go, you've got to get out of here for the weekend and see what happens, yeah.
1: Yeah, because I was, I was at uni at that time, and... I was stayed there and stayed working, and eventually the university about an hour later, the university mm. said everyone has to go home, mm. so I had to walk back through the city to Mount Vic and saw, you know, basically everyone else's workplaces had kind of come to that same yeah. feeling like we should all leave, and so the city was kind of all moving.
0: Yeah, um, at that time. I mean, the, Jane Baron wrote that book of co- well it was basically collected columns of, the, of her covering the the earthquake, um, Bucky and me, which is a good. I thought a really good little insight into into just how people are forced to adapt to deal with that stuff and 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 what the toll that it just keep take keeps taking on a person's mental bandwidth, really. But we we when when that February quake happened, we took in a couple of people from Christchurch because something to do with my wife's work. Like they basically just. If, if you could volunteer to house anyone that wanted to get the fuck out. Yeah. And so there was someone that, from the Christchurch office wanted to get out. So the, so she came up here with her partner. And it was unreal because the night, I think the first night they were here, or the second night, there was a, quite a sizable earthquake. Oh, yeah. And, and, well, and we were sitting in this room and it started to shake. And we were pretty relaxed about it because we, I, I don't know why, we just sort of thought, well, that's not gonna be yeah yeah you know, how could you know but it's just that stupid it's not gonna be and this woman f- rightly flipped and a couple of days later you know we got home and there was a, a note saying you know thanks mm-hmm. <laughs> thanks but we're out of here we've decided and and they'd gone back to Christchurch which I guess that, that I've, I've thought about that a lot like that just sort of like you know the hopelessness of that situation of like got to get out Oh God! I've just moved to somewhere I don't know at all, and they're telling me that place could be next, and then there's an earthquake. That feeling of of freaking out wherever you are and going, well, I might as well just go back to being yeah. around some people I know and a place I know.
1: Yeah, it was quite funny that that few weeks after the earthquake, because like everyone basically left, like heaps of people left. Crash. not everyone, mm. but I stayed there. I stayed in my flat, even though my flat didn't have running water or or plumbing or something, like, electricity mm. was coming, going on and off, but, um, I didn't really have another place to go, because my parents' houses were in this sort of same thing, and I, and I didn't really want to leave town, but I ended up alone in my flat with no plumbing, water, or electricity, just, like,
0: wow. sitting in
1: bed, and I don't even know what I did, I, like, yeah. But I also remember, like, similarly to the lockdown, um, recently, I just, like, I couldn't read when I was in that state, like, I just, mm. I didn't read until, uh, I came up to Wellington sometime in like March for a wedding, and, I, and I, when I was here, I read like two full novels, and then I went back to Christchurch and stopped, could stop being able to read again. And I think mm. that lasted a few months. Like, and that was the same with lockdown. I, mm. I I started a book a few days before lockdown, didn't read it at all, and then a few days after lockdown, I finished the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was.
0: It was. I know a lot of people that were in that. and I think. Like for me, I always like to have many books on the go. I uh, don't always finish all of them, but the intention is there. But I, I know in lockdown my reading became really just like browsing online and finishing off scraps of things I'd started that I was so close to finishing I could feel some sense of achievement, but the idea of starting a book and dedicate in theory it was the time when you could do it but your mind was just not capable of yeah of really focusing in on that
1: yeah I got basically no writing down no reading down yeah I played a lot of uh, Legend of Zelda over lockdown, that was,
0: that was my like, achievement. I played Dr. Mario, I, oh, yeah. I went old school with Dr. Mario, I'm not a big gaming person at all, but there was something very uh, cathartic about that, I think because you're killing viruses too, <laughs> you fits. know, I felt like I was helping, I suddenly I was offering an essential service in my house.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was, that's, that's pretty great, yeah, I'm, I'm not a big gamer either, but mm. I got given this um like console from a friend yeah. just before lockdown and
0: perfect. just Bye. spent the whole yeah
1: whole time playing this
0: yeah <laughs> so i mean we've started on a real bum note yeah. to, but so what what was your uh, impression of christchurch leading up to him before the earthquake like was it a good place to be uh and what like what, what was going on for you
1: in some ways i was very involved in the music scene i um since i was about 16 17 i was involved uh starting off with all ages stuff and like i um, organized a lot of all ages shows from 17 through to about 20, and I played in some bands and, uh, things like that, and there's some stuff about Christchurch that I really like, and I still really like, uh, about, like, art mm. there is, um, and part of it is because it, um, like, part of it is because... Sorry, I'm just getting distracted. <laughs> by the <doctor.
0: laughs> He's desperate for one yeah. of us to, to play with him in yeah. some way. And um, if we just ignore him, he'll <laughs> calm down.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, well, one thing I, I like about Crytich is this such a strong DIY scene, and part of that is out of necessity because there isn't yes. as yeah, yeah. much of an established thing, even venues. Like, for a long time, a lot of venues didn't even have their own PA. Yeah. So you ha- they had a, there'd be an empty room, you'd have to organise a PA to to show up to it, and no backline or anything like that. Uh, so it'd essentially just be, like, halls to to, mm. to play in, and then um, that didn't really change after the earthquakes. people had to keep doing it. And like, uh, so I was involved in some, like, punk scene and, and and indie music and those sorts of things, and a lot of that was just putting on your own shit. Yeah, it's yeah. always been that way. And then moving up to Wellington was quite interesting because suddenly you had Bats Theatre and you had... Venues like Mighty Mighty and Mm. San Fran that would pay Mm. like quite big guarantees, and there's this really bustling scene where people could just just do things without Mm. seemingly without like heaps of effort. You kind of have this supportive community around you. Where in Christchurch, it really felt like you had to um you had to fight to do anything, and I I think you know that sucks in a lot of ways, but it also means that you. uh, it really felt like making any, doing any sort of creative thing in Christchurch was like fighting against yeah. something. And, you know, it's a very conservative city in a lot of
0: ways. So, Yes, I was going to say, you're probably... There's an inbuilt sort of fighting against that to begin yeah. with, right? Like, you, you've decided to make art, so you're fighting against all the people with giant big fucking gardens. Yeah. Know, to begin with, you know, that have got lovely fences.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and even things like... I, I wasn't involved in theatre or comedy in Christchurch, but there's things like the Court Theatre, which is a yeah. very established big theatre, which mm. does um, these, kind of, these big productions, but mm. there's no equivalent to Bats or, or something. There yeah. is now this little yeah, Andromeda, yeah. which is um, really cool. But, yeah, you really had to you know, if yeah. you to do how something- do you
0: get good enough to be on those big stages, right? There's no training ground. Like, yeah. the training ground, you have to invent it. And Christchurch, got, to go back to that music thing, Christchurch has always kind of had that, right? Like, I mean, it's the actual home of Flying Nun. And, and before that, I think, like, in the 50s and 60s, the, the kind of bands that came out of Christchurch were the more punkish 60s bands, Chance R&B and stuff yeah. like that. Like, there's real kind of... Fuck you! We're doing it anyway. Yeah. No machine behind it. Yeah. It's always been there.
1: Yeah, and it's. Yeah, I find that really interesting and exciting about Christchurch and making making things in Christchurch. But also at the same time, it was really nice to be able to leave and finding sort of a supportive community behind it. Um, mm. Like there is a supportive community in Christchurch. Like all of the DIY sort of acts are all really supportive of each other. And mm. even now, like things like melted ice cream which um, has has been amazing, like, during lockdown, they did all those videos, and they're kind of one of the coolest labels in the country, just kind of always putting out Mm. more and more things, especially Christchurch-based things, and, um, yeah, I think... And
0: how did you you find your way into all that stuff? Like, what was the pull of music for you? Like, what was the trigger? Uh,
1: I I went to a, like, pretty... I I didn't have a good time at, um, high school, especially not for the first few years. I went to an all boys school, which... I didn't. It was a mistake. Yeah, it was definitely a mistake. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, like I felt like I had friends there, but it seemed to be like the sort of ultra competitive. Um, like you kind of spend a lot of time making fun of each other or like mm. fighting or something like that. And then, yeah, coming into um. Discovering like music suddenly it was, it really felt like something new and exciting where. Like a bit more supportive, but I was always into music. I was mm. always like you know had i sp- would always spend all my money on c d s uh from like twelve onwards and you know discovering this sort of live mm. thing mm. about when I was about fifteen was just yeah really life changing it really um once I started meeting people through there that became like my primary social group i yeah just my whole life changed with that, and that's also just what got me into like a creative realm at all like mm. Without that, I don't think I'd be doing performing or writing or anything like that.
0: It's funny how people think of little um, clubs and cliques as having this exclusivity about them, but actually, like, music-related groups, and, and I guess, same with theatre and, and anything, but lots of music clubs, if you like, they're these wonderful, inclusive places where people find themselves. Yeah. Um, and I think the person looking from the outside going, oh, well, that's just a pack of uh, snobs that wouldn't want me, is, is really only projecting their own shyness and insecurity onto the situation, which I totally understand how that would happen. But, you know, actually you make an effort to yeah. get involved or just turn up and suddenly you're recognised as a fan or supporter of something and people, people come to you and include you.
1: Yeah, and I found it was really interesting... Because I, I started going to these gigs at 15, and at that time, a lot of my friends from school were also going to these gigs, it was one of the, you know, some of mm. the only things that were available for young people to do. And then by the time they got to 17, they didn't want to go to these, like, all-ages gigs with 14, 15-year-olds anymore, they would rather drive around mm. in their cars, but I, I kept going to the gigs because they are really important to me, and I also had made these friends there, which I, who I wouldn't see through school or things like that. And then when I turned eighteen, I just kept going to the gigs, but now they were R eighteen gigs. And within about a year, I was I'd talk to friends from school who would be like, "Oh, I'm not cool enough to go to this gig." Mm. And it's the same thing that two years earlier they were saying they were too cool to go mm. to. Mm. Then, yeah, it, I, yeah, it was really, really interesting. But I think also a big part of it was I kind of always wanted to be in bands, like from you know, even before I started going to these gigs, and I I did, I was in a band when I was 18, but I think a bigger thing was getting really involved with, um, putting on these shows, and through that, I really got to know all of these musicians, mm-hmm. and some of them, you know, have ended up being in quite big, successful bands worldwide now, mm. um, and through, yeah, through that sort of organising stuff, and, um, just showing up, and, you know, sometimes I'd be flatting with some of them, or... Playing mm. mm. with people who are in other bands, so yeah, yeah, was... yeah,
0: yeah. And how does the writing kind of come into it for you? Because I imagine you're of um, an age in an era where the first opportunity to to write is probably just discovering blogging for yourself and things like that.
1: Yeah, blogging was the like the way I started writing. Um, definitely, I I started a blog about about being depressed when I was nineteen, and I was thinking. I was talking to my counsellor about this the other day, because he was like, oh, what made you decide after being so, um, like, because uh, I was so, like, bottled up all the way through my teenage yeah. years, and, like, what made me decide to actually start putting things out there, and I think it was a, I actually think it was quite a gradual thing, because at the time, it was kind of the uh, very early days of Facebook, and before that I was on MySpace, and it was actually really common to, you know, write a paragraph about, like, here's what I did today, or here's why I'm mm-hmm. angry, or these types of things, which we don't really use social media for as mm, much anymore, mm. but it was
0: It was yes, a really... It more diary confessional stuff when it started, in a way, but public, Yeah. the public version of that.
1: But it was public in the way yes. that you wrote to your 50 friends that yeah. were on these things. Yeah. It's like you didn't have your parents on them, you didn't have, mm, mm. you know, your yeah, um, family bosses friends on them. Or, and <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: So it, it was much much more closed, and it didn't really yes. seem like a big thing from going from that to starting this mm. this blog right? started actually writing and at the time it was just like a vehicle to get these sort of feelings out but over the next few years I started writing at first it was kind of sort of diary type things and then it went on to become poetry and then sort of eventually this kind of fiction or um things like that and and it always was a mix and it was never very good but uh yeah that's how I started writing and by the time I was about Twenty twenty one. So only a couple of years later, I, I decided I wanted to become a writer and did a creative writing class at Canterbury University. And then, had my eyes set on the masters at Victoria University. I kind of discovered that, and I was like, I really want to do that. And then yeah, I it's decided. A big, yeah. Big
0: flag on a big hill for a lot of people, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and then I decided I wanted to move to Victoria University and do the undergraduate creative writing stuff as well. So mm. that all happened.
0: Let's go back a second to you talking about blogging about your depression at 19, when did you... So, is, you know, when did you know about depression, your your own or in general? Like, when did you become aware of depression?
1: Uh, well, 19 is when I started getting support for it. Yeah. Um, and that came out through, like, you know, a series of very severe breakdowns um, around, like, yeah, early, early 19. It was just after I'd moved out of home and, you know, started drinking a whole lot more and that sort of exasperated things. But looking back on it, I think, you know, it went back to my early teens. I just didn't have the words to describe it, um, of sort of depression. And then later on, I kind of realized some of it was anxiety rather than depression. But Mm. uh, yeah, 19 was when I started, you know, actually paying attention to these feelings.
0: And so at some point, I imagine there's a sort of feeling of a kind of relief for being made aware of it and diagnosed. But, you know, not... Relief's not quite the word, but, like, it's all steps in understanding, right? So you were talking about not being able to articulate it, and but knowing there was a feeling.
1: Yeah. Like, it was never... I'd never say it was a relief, but... um, No. The the freedom of, like, expression was, was huge. And I think once I started writing about it, because that, that blog had, was so public, and there was stuff that I would never talk about today, yeah. like, so many um, feelings, and some some of the things I wrote were just, like, horrible, like, really cruel, and uh, things like that, but I think once I realised I could...
0: I could. It's like an open word yeah,
1: book Yeah, I could, um, you know, express my feelings. I, I, I couldn't mm. stop, and I went back at the beginning of this year and kind of read the first few years of my blog to see what it was because I haven't looked at it for yeah many years and it's funny some of well, a lot of the things I was talking about like these sort of frustrations and feelings and things like that' is the things that I still still was writing about in in mm. the book mm. but you know in in quite a different way I think but yeah a lot of the feelings were the ones that were still there the sort of feelings of loneliness and frustration and
0: Mm. Yeah,
1: those sort of mm. things.
0: Mm. It's interesting that, I mean, you've, you have you have directly lived through the Christchurch earthquake and then we've, we're have we still, I guess, living through a pandemic, although we feel pretty lucky and a tiny bit smug in New Zealand at the moment, which is ever so slightly worrying, I think. But we've all lived through a, a lockdown and an ongoing pandemic. And I feel like people are... Um, experiencing versions of grief and depression around those things, but is it, is that minimising of, has that ever felt like that's minimising of your actual depression to have people basically go, well, now I know what it's like, (laughs) you know, now I know what it's like?
1: Uh, sometimes. I think the earthquakes was a really big thing, because, like, yeah, it did, like, really fuck up a lot of people, um... Emotionally and, like, mental health-wise, the earthquakes. But also, that year, regardless of the earthquakes, was also, like, my most challenging year right. mental health-wise. And I think yeah. suddenly seeing these people being like, oh, it's okay to be depressed or it's, like, it's okay mm-hmm. to have these, like, difficult feelings. Like, yeah, but, like, the ones that you're feeling are, like, are, are quite different to the ones that I'm feeling, yes. like.
0: Yes, uh, yes. Yeah, and you've now got two, you're I, now collecting sets of them. Yeah. So you've, got, you've got all that as well. Yeah, but I
1: think... As I've grown older, I I think I'm just a bit more empathetic to, like, the idea that everyone has, like, their own issues, and Mm. just because my ones are, are, you know, really severe for me at a certain time, it doesn't make other people's not challenging in their own ways, especially if they haven't developed, sort of, the skills and how to deal with them, Mm. Mm. which I think, like, in lockdown, that was quite interesting because early on everyone was really anxious including me but um at least i felt like i had some skills of and ways that I'd, i i knew how to deal with anxiety because i'd been dealing with it for a decade yeah, yeah. Or, or longer um but then kind of as soon as people started developing their own skills and dealing with the anxiety they managed to get through it and i still was anxious even though i was yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I,
1: was, I, I felt quite, quite good at the beginning of like, oh yeah, I know what it's like to, to feel this way.
0: Mm, mm. Um, So you come to Wellington to do the writing course, basically. You do the undergraduate first. Or do you come to Wellington to just escape Christchurch? Or is it kind of linked?
1: It's kind of all of the above. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, a, a big thing was to do the undergraduate creative yeah. writing courses. The creative writing course I did at Canterbury University uh, wasn't very good. In, Just a
0: little starter kit.
1: Uh, yeah, well like um, an issue was is the university kind of made it lecture style rather than workshop right, style yeah, so yeah. you can't teach creative writing doesn't like, work, yeah. that way and um, I also think I went into it quite smug thinking I was uh, quite a good writer because i had been blogging and got yeah, this attention. Yeah. Then
0: I've got my voice and yeah, I know what I'm doing.
1: And kind of realising <laughs> uh, through that that I wasn't as good as I thought I was. Mm. There were a whole lot of people in in the course that had been writing for a much longer time than mm. I had and had a lot more sort of skills and than I, than I actually had. And yeah, I think that was a good wake up call that like, actually I wasn't amazing. I, I had to, I had to put in work to, mm. to become, to become good. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah, over from that time, which I think was the, I think that was the end of 2010 through to, 2012 when I did the um, first I did my first undergraduate course at, at Victoria was um I, I put a lot of work into actually mm. getting better at, at writing mm. and I think I like I've, I've always been putting work into getting better at writing and so
0: you were writing in terms of the creative writing course you were writing what primarily short stories or yeah yeah
1: yeah it was sure. entirely entirely short stories uh, yeah yeah, I think I applied for some poetry ones and didn't get in when I first yeah. moved up to Wellington, but yeah. yeah, by the time I I sort of started writing short stories in, sometime in 2011, and around that time I sort of stopped writing poetry. Um, oh, no, actually, maybe it was a bit later, I think it was when I started doing comedy that I stopped writing poetry, really. Mm-mm.
0: How did you get into comedy? Th-
1: through poetry, I started... Um, <laughs>
0: Slippery slope. <laughs> yeah, well, like,
1: it's... I, um, The Humorous Arts Trust in Wellington, which um, puts on a lot of the um, comedy shows here, they used to do poetry slams as well. Mm. And I entered one of those. And I'd I'd entered a bunch of poetry slams in Christchurch, and I I seemed to do this thing where I would do a funny poem first, and I'd get into the second round, and then I'd do a more serious poem, and then I wouldn't get into the next round. So I kind of realized...
0: I need to flip that script. Well, I just need to... I, <laughs> or I just, just stick with my... Yeah, yeah. Just, <laughs> just stick with the funny poems. And yeah.
1: I did that, and you know, I, I did, I think I I think I got into the finals of the um, of the poetry slam I did, and somebody there said, oh, you should give Stand Up a try. And I went and did an open mic where I just read out some of the poems that I'd written, mm. and then I did it again, but the next time I, you know, did some other comedy, and then Got asked to do another show and yeah, just started doing it and I never, I never did it with the intention of becoming a comedian. Like
0: mm, mm.
1: I basically had never watched a comedy special. I'd never
0: right. so You were no big. That's what I was gonna ask. You were no big, you know, analysing comedy nerd. That nah, not at all. And and, and have even you become now, one in any real way? No, I
1: do, like, I yeah. do watch comedy yeah. specials on Netflix and, and... Well, they're
0: much easier now they're, they're yeah. right in front of us. Yeah, yeah.
1: And and I also, you know, I really like when the comedy festival is on, I mm. go to a lot of those shows mm. and I, I, I'm not as big of a fan of the sort of the line-up show. Mm. I really like seeing someone kind of have quite a long time and, and be given their own audience and their own voice and, you know, being able to explore that a lot better but I, you know there are some really amazing short sets as well Um,
0: well it strikes me that the comedy for you has been about um, maybe first and foremost it's been about writing it's been a vehicle or or certainly in there it's been a vehicle for writing and then it's also been about what conquering some kind of fear or anxiety of, of 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 just being let alone let alone of performing
1: yeah, those those are definitely, like, the two two major things. Mm. I think when I started doing it regularly, like, I was, you know, a really terrible performer. I'd just be, like, shaking and sweating and mm. all of those sorts of things. And I, I was that through the poetry slams as well. But I kind of always had these poems about mental health, or, like, or my early comedy, and, you know, most of my comedy has really been about mental health, or these mm. sort of things, and, and that sort of performance style worked. Uh the beginning quite well of, but, yeah, a lot of it was just, like, proving to myself I could do it, because I I had some pretty serious anxiety uh, around that time, 2011, 2012, um, sort of types of agoraphobia at times, where I, like, wow, yeah. couldn't, just, I couldn't leave the house, or, or I could leave the house, but it would take a like lot flat
0: out debilitating.
1: Yeah, and you know being able to prove to myself that i could get up on stage and do it was was a really big deal for me uh, but yeah also the writing i've always thought of myself as like a stronger writer than a performer and i think that is still
0: different yeah, true yeah it's, it's interesting with comedy isn't it that it, that it, obviously there are so many examples of these people that do both that are extraordinary performers that you almost think came out on the stage for the first time being a great performer but the writing is there but really it's kind of as two camps there are people that are just if you're such a good charismatic performer you can make a slightly dud joke Mm. sale and if you're such a strong writer people will forgive not as you know or you can find your performing voice through the writing
1: yeah, basically everyone starts out with one or the other.
0: That's right. Yeah, no no one seems to be fully formed.
1: Yeah. And like there are some comedians who are great now who start out with neither. Yeah. Like but they start out with a passion for comedy that they, you know, they're going to work through.
0: Go all the way back to I mean, you know, he's he's still referenced as one of the all-time greats, Richard Pryor. And he he didn't have either. Yeah. <laughs> he started he was he was borrowing Bill Cosby's voice, which yeah. is, you know, not a good thing to do at all now, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. back then that was the the thing to do. And but through that, he he developed both, and I mean he's he's you know I know there's generations now that don't need his influence, mm. which is really good when mm. when something can be moved past. But he's he's one of the names.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And yeah. he didn't
0: arrive fully formed, and I don't think someone like Dave Chappelle did either. You know?
1: No, like, no, no one arrives fully no. formed because. The comedy takes work and and yes all it, art it family, has
0: to be actually worked out in public too you can't just sit in your garage and 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 preach to the garage mm. wall and then turn up
1: yeah although i think i do kind of think that um if you do come at it through a writing perspective you do have that um like an additional help where you can sit down and read something and be like oh that doesn't yeah. actually work yeah or yeah things like that which um you know I, I will generally do that if I'm making a show I will kind of read through and edit things beforehand mm. if I'm just doing a um a six minute set I'll often just just jump up on stage with an idea and if it's you know a low a lower level show mm. with an idea and'll I'll sort of chat through it uh, and see what lands and then kind of make notes on that afterwards mm. but mm. I think being able to do that comes with practice like you you can't start off comedy doing that
0: mm. what have the uh highs and lows of comedy which everyone i imagine experiences uh what have they been like for you
1: uh, to deal with yeah well there was a period in 2015 when the like the later half of 2015 was like amazing for comedy i i Went up to Auckland and took a show up to Auckland, it uh, and took it to the basement theater and you know sold really well, and then I um, did a really amazing spot at the Billy T application showcase, and I didn't get nominated for the Billy T award, which was um, you know I I thought that was quite a bummer. I really I really, yeah. I, I really uh, you thought you earned your shot. Yeah, and like I think yeah, a lot of it, yeah a lot of other people
0: did too did did too <laughs> yeah
1: like and. Uh, yeah, and then not getting nominated for that was was a big bummer. Mm. But um, that was the day I applied for the Creative Writing Masters. I, I wasn't planning on doing it the following year, but I was like, well, if I'm not going to do the Billy T... Right, I'm uh, going to go down this path. Yeah, I'll go down <laughs> that path. So I put my application to get in a day and then um, got, got, got in and, yeah. and did the Masters the following year. But yeah, soon after that, I got a spot on a TV show called Aote Rising Stars. And also that was the time where VKs had started up and was getting a number of pro spots and those sorts of things. And yeah, things were going really well.
0: It was a bummer that venue couldn't work out, wasn't it? Because it had the right intentions, as these things do, and it seemed to have the right format. Yeah. And seemed to have everything going for it. But um, numbers, I suppose. Yeah.
1: I think... I I can't say what what yeah. went wrong there, yeah. but uh, I think it really had potential, yeah. and but I think sometimes you just have to l- let things keep keep going for a few years, and yeah. obviously that wasn't. Well, that's what I mean. It's yeah.
0: numbers, like yeah. either either people weren't turning up enough, yeah, or uh, there wasn't. There's no no one you know supporting it that can actually. Yeah. drop some cash into it and 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 make it a loss leader for as long as it needs to be which is understandable because yeah. that's sort of that sort of, um, that sort of uh, investment is, is is a godsend basically yeah
1: in the first six months of it I think it was going really well yeah. and then it kind yeah. of once Wellington got used to it being there they stopped showing up mm. um
0: yeah I only went a couple yeah. of times but I, I I I was like this this is great like this yeah. is and it was amazing because I've 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 been in Wellington long enough to remember when there was like one shaky open mic that no one went to, yeah, you know, and then you know it's grown and growing, yeah, but that was like the a sort of legitimizing of man, this is a dedicated comedy club that looks good mm. that has actual international guests popping in yeah. but. It can form a bill just around locals as well like it yeah. doesn't it doesn't just exist because someone famous has come into town
1: yeah and at the time I think I'd, I'd I haven't really been doing comedy for the last yeah almost two years now so I, I'm not really sure what the Out Wellington the scene loop. is now <laughs> yeah but at the time you know there was a really strong Wellington scene there was a lot of mm. great comedians mm. that had really strong sets and a lot of them are still still performing now but some of them have moved away or stopped doing comedy or or just stopped doing it as much yeah um But yeah, that time in 2015, I was getting a lot of pro spots, I was getting, uh, like, lots of attention, and then I was like, I'm going to stop doing comedy for a year to do this Masters, Uh, and the Masters was amazing, I'm, like, very happy I did it, but then when I came back in 2016, Mm. it sort of all stopped, like, VK's closed down soon after that, and like, because I'd kind of not been doing comedy for nearly a year yeah, uh,
0: sort of you were rusty <laughs> well i like
1: i think i think i was fine but yeah, had yeah. kind of forgotten who i was yeah or, yeah yeah you know then you're not going to give someone who hasn't really performed for yeah, a while a,
0: well yeah you're but you're having to rebuild your, yeah. your your brand in that area your name. yeah
1: and i think i never quite um i never quite like got back to the stage like, in popularity where i was then even though i think i like i really think I was a better comedian in the end than I was earlier, and I think part of the reason for that is I just got became a much better writer from mm. writing for a year. Uh, but then there have been some other really big highlights, like uh, I did a show in 2018 called Dignity that I thought was, you know, really good. I think it was probably the best show I've done, mm. and that got good audiences, and I performed up in Auckland for the Comedy Fest there and got, got good audiences and good reviews there. Uh, and then six months later i took another show up to auckland called i will jones which was sort of more of a play than it was a comedy show and that was just like a massive struggle it was yeah just i'd got
0: a really small to, audiences
1: yeah. uh, audiences and, off a bit much <laughs> yeah well i don't really know what happened there because yeah. um like it was definitely my most like sort of polished professional show it was the first one where i had like I had a director and right, yeah, sound yeah. design and lighting yeah. design and, and it was a much more expensive show to put on and mm. then yeah it just really felt like the um and the people who came seemed to really like it but it was just hard to get more than 15 people along yeah. and and well, that's really
0: the eternal battle yeah, of the arts isn't it
1: <laughs> yeah and I was already feeling a bit jaded by comedy at the time so I, I, I think around that time it's when I was like oh I should I'm gonna stop for a while and focus on writing the book so Mm. that's kind of what I did I um yeah sort of near the end of 2018 I kind of stopped performing it was kind of maybe even August Mm. September and then I um spent a good few months working um I moved down to Nelson and was working on the book and then continued on until about June last year and then sent it into VUP and you know after that there's still a lot more work to do but yeah, yeah I so I, I kind of stopped performing and it did end on a, or well, didn't end cause I still occasionally perform now, mm. but it did, um, it didn't like performing being a major part of my life did kind of end on a bit of a slump with this like quite, uh, bad season in Auckland, but it, um, it was, I think it was really good for me to just shift my attention right. uh, back to the book. Cause between finishing the masters and around then I, I didn't really do any writing just because I would always have a gig coming up, and it's like mm. you know, it was more important to write for this ten-minute set that I had than, than this novel that was sort of half completed.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that's your that's your Rambo move, going back to Auckland to n- nail a big show. Eventually, you're gonna
1: yeah. That's in your mind. Well, I like and I have done um, stuff like last year. I went up to Auckland for the Auckland Writers' Fest, and I. Uh, they they had me on doing a comedy show in the Auckland Writers Fest as kind of a of you know, a sort of different thing mm. than they usually have. Mm. Um, it was to do with um this book Headlands, uh, which is about anxiety and I had an essay in it about um, performing with anxiety and, and what that was like. So they had me do a um, comedy show there and I that sold out and had a really good response and it was really nice having that. It was weird because the Auckland Writers Festival in the Auckland and the New Zealand Comedy Festival are on at the same time, mm. so it's quite strange doing a sold-out comedy show in Auckland during the Comedy Festival. That it wasn't part of the Comedy Festival yeah, at yeah, all. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah,
0: yeah. So I mean, when you go on stage and perform, and people love it, and you and you love it, and you feel good about it, what what's that doing? You know? Do you notice what that's doing for you? That's beneficial.
1: Oh, it's just, it's there's, basically, uh, there's n- it's the best feeling like Nothing having having a room full of people. Do you that feel
0: like, most alive, or whatever the cliche is? Yeah, you know? so, yeah.
1: I, I think it's something like that. Like, yeah, I yeah, I don't know if I've had a better feeling in the moment than mm-hmm. being in front of a room of people who are that gets it. Yeah, that, <laughs> and like
0: and shows you that they get it. yeah. Yeah,
1: like. I think probably the best feeling I've had this this year was at my book launch during right. my launch speech, and which is a version of that. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, I wish I recorded it because I didn't, I didn't really write it. Right. Uh, I kind of. Wouldn't it? Well, I I, at, across the, I went to a bar across the road about half an hour before the launch started, <laughs> yeah. and and wrote a bunch of notes on my phone, and then yeah, um, yeah, and. It, it went off really well when I told a bunch of jokes and it went and I, and I didn't record it so I don't know what I said mm. but it was um that was great and that was a very similar feeling but um I think that was because you know at my book launch which was shared with um, Freya
0: yeah
1: I already had the room on side right like if I was yes. going to tell a joke that a, a joke that was funny people were going to laugh because they yeah. they wanted to they were there that's to, support, they to me. support
0: you. yeah yeah
1: and that's the same with you know doing a doing a show in the comedy festival yes if it's a sold out show which ha- you know happens sometimes yeah it's yeah. generally because the people you know it's been hyped behind it and people are there because mm. they want to laugh
0: mm. and they paid their money and they're, they're out and about during the season yeah to, to enjoy it so they're on your side
1: yeah totally as much
0: as you'd have to go out and offend them in the opening number and and in such a way that they didn't realise that was part of the shtick mm. to really turn them against you, right? Yeah. Pretty much.
1: Definitely. Yeah. And it's um, but yeah, there isn't a, a better feeling than that. But the other side of comedy, which I, which was the worst feeling, is just like basically begging people to come to your shows. Yeah. Like, why am I
0: bothering? Yeah. Why? And
1: just like being like, I know this show is good. Everyone that's come likes it, but just can you please buy a ticket? Can you please come along? And just like this, this when it gets to the stage where it feels like begging rather than promoting, because it's...
0: And I think it's, you know, I think... I I guess it's always been tricky, but I just think right now, like, when I say right now, really the last decade and certainly the last five years, it's fucking hard to get people to leave their house, right? Like, you're fighting a lot of competition, like people talk about the Netflix effect, and that's just one of several platforms now. Um, And people people spend a lot of time at work so they like their time at home that whole idea of a, a third place mm. doesn't exist for a lot of people or if it does it's the gym yeah because that is their both mental and physical health outlet and that's completely understandable and then if they get home from the gym at seven thirty, mm. and they've got to get the kids to school the next day you're asking them to step out half an hour after they just got in... Yeah. ...put dinner aside or munch something down quick, pay you some money, and show you you that you showed them a good time, and then come home exhausted and do it all over again. Yeah. And it it isn't your job to think all of that... No. ...at all. But when you do start thinking about that, you go, I guess you go, fuck, why am I bothering? And... It's but awesome. when you can yeah. convert those people and get that feeling we were just talking about, it's even greater that you if you stop to go, Man, not only did I kill and did they tell me I killed, but these people have got lives and yeah. they put them on hold for a bit to come and see me.
1: Yeah, that's yeah <laughs> that's such a good good feeling and a great thing to do. And it and it's also like it's hard to compete against like a Netflix comedy special because yeah. Those are people at the top of their game. Yeah. There's editing, there's lighting. Yeah. They've you know, it, it's a total... Well, it comes with two
0: guarantees, yeah. doesn't it? It comes with the guarantee that it's been pre-selected and has all that, that all the production values and, and experience you spoke of. And it has the second um, layer of, if it sucks, something else is just a click away. Yeah. So you can vote with your feet and get out of there real quick and put on a replacement.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's like, absolutely no risk involved. Uh, so, yeah. and it, But it is funny when people will be like oh, like new zealand comedy sucks but it's because they're comparing it to yeah yeah you know the absolute best things that the best comedians in the world or like and i think you know there are a number of new zealand comedians who i think could make uh, a netflix special that's as good as the ones there if they had the you know the resources behind them like i think someone like or like Rose is gonna have a special mm. really soon, but someone mm. like Guy Montgomery or Chris mm-hmm. Parker, mm. um, or even like someone like Justine Smith, I think would would be able to put together like an amazing special if they were given the opportunity and they had that team that would like, you know, make sure it looked good and make sure it sounded good and and they'd have all that that practice. Well,
0: mm. Ursula Carlson's yeah. just done it. Totally and I don't know if she's done it successfully or not, but she's just done it. Yeah. I mean, I've watched it, and it was, um, I guess, better than I thought it might be. I might have gone in thinking with that negative attitude of, well, let's see if this is any good at all. I bet this fails. And I didn't. I didn't dislike it, but I don't know if it's... It's the problem with it being subjective like that. I don't know if it's rating at all and if the rating means anything but certainly it's certainly it was not embarrassing yeah it certainly didn't look like oh well, this is someone's throwing someone a bone here this is an inferior product it was a it sat in line with the work that's on there
1: yeah and i i haven't seen it but yeah i've read and i things. know that's not a yeah. you know I'm, yeah.
0: I'm not i'm neither trying i'm just being honest about my yeah. experience watching it i'm not trying to crush her or, yeah or or suggest that she's one of the best but the fact that it exists is something that wouldn't have happened a few years ago
1: yeah and it also like the fact that it doesn't stick out as being substantially worse yes. or or like substantially better. yeah bare, no she hasn't won she... a
0: fair play award it's no. there it's there on a merit yeah yeah that that's the same as anyone else's yeah yeah
1: and like if you look at her success in, i think especially in australia because mm. you know yeah, they're home she... really now right like, yeah comedy home too because then she has had a lot of TV experience yeah. and things in in New Zealand, but I mean a, and in Australia. But you know Ursula got got big in New Zealand because she was on TV, I think. But yes. Ursula got big in Australia because she just started putting amazing shows up at the Melbourne Comedy Festival, and they kept on selling, selling out art and, yeah. and and, and yeah. then she did do these regional tours, which everyone loved. And then and then she got the TV spot. So I think she really you know she's earned her place.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean. But to go back to what you said, like I mean, you know, I, I know we possibly both know, but I know I've been absolutely guilty of basically, essentially saying New Zealand comedy sucks. Yeah, I haven't maybe quite said it, uh, in just those words. I've maybe had a go at trying to explain it beyond that, but I haven't always felt that, and I don't always feel that. But 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 to go into bat for myself, for a bit, when I have said something of that, of that on that level, that sort of needs to happen like part of the reason and I'm not I'm not saying I'm part of the reason comedy's got better at all or people like me but that is part of that process right like as yeah. you get you get up there you promote your show you want people to come and one of the people that might come to it especially back in the day was a newspaper reviewer yeah. and if a newspaper reviewer says it's garbage they might be being an absolute jerk and they might have the wrong end of the stick mm but it's another thing to fight against like yeah. those people with the big houses in Christchurch yeah. like those people with the better sound systems and like those people on Netflix with the better production yeah. values it's another thing to fight against and to develop a healthier bigger stronger machine around
1: yeah and i i like i totally think that any art form needs a healthy critical environment to succeed and to to get better and there is a like there is a huge issue with comedy Reviewing and the fact that there's very little of it, and, mm, and it's very also, little good. At, yeah, yeah, and you know during the comedy festival, just there's some like really, really like just absolute balls reviews that yeah. come through. But then at the same yeah, time, yes,
0: they spoil the plot of yeah. someone's hard work, like someone like yourself that actually builds a show doesn't just run off a series of gags but actually it's no win if if a person just runs a series of gags and someone's spoiling the punchlines that's just as bad as well yeah Yeah. Yeah.
1: and it's also but on the other hand I think comedians from my experience are like more fragile than almost any other people in responding to bad reviews and I think sometimes somebody will get quite a legitimate bad review that's like well written and well argued and they'll you know, they'll just complain about it because
0: because it doesn't say what they want. Yeah, because because
1: yeah. what they're looking, what a lot of comedians are looking for in a review is promotion, mm. and that that's not the purpose of reviews. Although, that's right. yeah, there it are, does like, get cross mudded.
0: purposes instantly, aren't they? Like, yeah,
1: yeah, uh, and people mis- mistake it not being a glowing review for being you know a badly written, mm. badly argued review, and and if that's the response that that. People are going to give every time they get reviewed is like our oh, reviewers suck. Mm-mm. Criticism is is bad. Yeah, yeah, Then like, why would a reviewer go to yeah. a show and just so they can get insulted? Yeah. Afterwards, especially since they're probably not getting paid or they're yeah, not yeah. getting paid very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they're not and, getting a load.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's
1: yeah. Right. Uh, so I think, and it's a, it's the same across all art forms. And I think, yeah. it, and you know, we have seen.
0: But you're starting to sound like you're sympathising with the critics here a little bit.
1: Ah, oh, I totally, I, 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 <laughs> I just, I just,
0: I just wanted to warn you.
1: <laughs> like I am, and like I also think that you know, there's there's some perf- like there's this totally reasonable criticism of criticism. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. But there are some great places, like I think Pantagraph Punch mm-hmm. has shown, you know, time and time again that sure. it is possible to do good review, <laughs> like yeah, do yeah, well written yeah, reviews. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and like yeah yeah and maybe it's because i'm like now a little bit further out from the comedy scene yeah yeah that yeah, i yeah. that i feel comfortable saying that because i think at the time like
0: you're when you're yeah. in it yeah you're, yeah. you're deeply yeah. my my um problem that i've noticed with and i feel this goes right across the board not just in new zealand it's really noticeable Well, the the superstar comics of Netflix and and beyond in America is the defence a lot of comedians have against a bad review isn't that the audience liked it, it's that their comedian friends liked it. Yeah. And that, to me, is a meaningless defence. That's like saying my little club Mm. of people who struggle along with me and Mm. know the road like I know... And know the loneliness and the ego attacks of being up on stage and eating at a diner at three a.m. We're all in this together, and we think this is good. That's really good camaraderie, but I don't feel that's a reasonable um, rebuttal. Yeah. To a reason, to a reasoned reviewer, for reasoned reviewers, the thing they're fighting against. Obviously, if someone just goes this is shit, and I'm not even going to say why, I just think this person shouldn't have wasted their time. That That's not anything.
1: Yeah. And also in that, saying that, like, because the comedy scene is small, you're not going to publicly say, hey, I went to this show by ex-well-known mm. comedian and it sucked it was one of the worst things I ever saw because you're gonna gig with him eventually you're gonna yeah, yeah. do these sorts of things no I
0: get that I yeah. get that but then using that as yeah. a, the, the the problem with that is again that's across you know the the, the unspoken understanding mm. that anyone else has is these people are either mates mm. or they're in the same game so they can't speak yeah. out against each other. Yeah. And so using that as a, mar- a benchmark of quality makes no sense to go, this person like they know what my struggle is and they're on board with it, why can't you? It's like, we're at different we're at different levels here.
1: Yeah. And like, I think, I, I totally agree. I wouldn't, I think the, the only distinction for that would be like, because there are some comedians who are definitely like, they're called like comedians comedians mm-hmm. who, people will go and watch them, and it's like, the craft is amazing, and yeah. doing, And I think, like, an example of that in New Zealand would be someone like Eli Mathewson, yeah, yeah. who just constantly puts together some yeah. of the most, um, crafted, like, tight, amazing shows, and they don't always get the same huge public reaction as some other people, but, like, I basically have never talk to a comedian about his shows that have, that have said they didn't like it. Like, they, his shows are just mm, constantly mm. amazing. And I think that type of criticism is is really valuable of just being like, this is this is the act that comedians love. For sure, yeah, love. no, no, totally. But if you're, like, seeing a comedian putting together their very first show, and it's never going to be amazing, but there might be some good things about it, like, like a comedian saying nice things about that is not mm. the same as... Mm. Uh,
0: yeah, totally. Yeah. I think in two thousand and nine or ten, they put they had the first um, critics' prize for the New Zealand Music Awards. That's what they called it, like uh, And um, and I went up to Auckland. I was asked to go up to be one of the people to sit on this uh, preliminary panel where they discussed the the finalists. And I can't remember her name, but a person who was working for under the radar at the time said her big pitch for a band was i think we should pick these guys because they're a band that other bands like and that to me speaks volumes and everyone was taking that on board around the table and i said we're supposed to be critics judging a critics award frankly who gives a fuck what another band thinks of a band here that's meaningless And I felt the air vanish from the room. And no one had my back, which I am used to and did not care. And I went home and sent an email the next day saying, I'm out. I'm off the list. Do what you like. I don't care. I I won't shit on you guys for this. I don't care if you shit on me. I'm not part of this because of that. And, uh, you know, that's... That to me, that's an example of that thing you were talking about with yeah. the comedian thing. You know, that has no validity in that situation. Yeah. You're asking critics to get together. I mean, someone who posts fucking gig details and under the radar, frankly, isn't a critic anyway, <laughs> I, I would argue. Um, but anyway, they've... Um, that, that was the lineup in that room on that occasion and that's always sat with me as like, you know, and I'm not saying that as a hero story like I did the right thing because my, my life has been a series of bumbling from poorly paid gigs to no gigs. Yeah. So I'm, I'm no hero. But, you know, at, at least I understood what was supposed to be required of the situation.
1: Well, yeah, in that situation, it's like you've been asked to judge something and yeah. you should have faith in your own judgment.
0: Because I totally agree with the idea that, hey, if a music, I'm interested in a musician's favourite band. Yeah. Totally. You know, we. I grew up reading and I write for and continue to read interviews with musicians and I'm, fuck, if my favourite musician is digging something I haven't heard of, I want to check out what that is. And if they're digging something I love, yeah. I instantly think... All three things, mm. you know, me, that musician, and the music they're talking about, were all suddenly a bit cooler. Yeah, I'm totally on board with that, but it just wasn't in that situation. It wasn't applicable.
1: Yeah. And I'd say, like in that situation, if there's a band who were like universally loved by other bands, they're worth. That's that's something that's worth taking into consideration mm-hmm. in some sense. It's like, oh, why do these other yeah bands, like, yeah yeah, like, yeah for sure? Is it because they're really nice dudes that buy? ever run beers whenever they play gigs? Totally. Or is it, Or is it because, yeah. you know, they have amazing production mm, that, you mm. know, when a, when a musician listens, they're like, holy shit, they've managed to create, like, the perfect drum sound, which I think... Yeah, yeah. That's something that you may not hear in the first time, but then first time you listen to something, but then that's something that you can appreciate
0: for later sure. on. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so you... Let's, let's go to the novel a bit more. So you... Mm work on this is this basically the result i mean i know it's the result on any le- on any level but is this the result of that master's class is yeah. this what you went in to do though
1: uh i wrote it uh, i went in uh, and my pitch was very broad as uh, a collection of short stories roughly about anxiety mm-hmm. that was um my pitch and mm. that's what i got in and that's what i started writing uh
0: and that included some of the things that have ended up yeah. in this
1: book. So out of that book, there are 12 stories. Nine of them were written in that course. Mm. Out of those nine, I think only one is hasn't been edited since that course. But um, yeah, nine of them were written there. and But they, it didn't really have the form that it has now uh, by the end of the course. It was, it was only starting to get I started to realise that yeah. they were connected. I, I had another... I think another three or four stories that I, that I either thrown out before I um, finished the masters, or, or that made it into the thesis,
0: but haven't made it into the book. Mm. Um, this has been best described as an episodic novel. I feel like I could go back and reread it with a lot of space between each chapter, and 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 fill them out as individual stories, and they would still work.
1: Yeah, that was that was like my major job over that two months I was living Mm. in Nelson was to... That was really important to me, that every story in the book could both work by itself and but would work Mm. in the context of where it was in the book, and it would tell a a larger story. And that was... I think that was, like, a challenge that I gave myself, and I think I did it really well. Mm. But personally, like, I love short stories. They're my favourite thing to read. They're my favourite thing to write. They're my favourite thing to talk about when, when talking about work. Uh, and they sell terribly.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, if there's a, <laughs> a, a, a worse thing to do than than be a critic or write poetry, Yeah, it's write short stories, right, in terms of for financial gain.
1: Yeah. And, a tricky
0: thing to market.
1: And, yeah, I kind of wanted to trick people into reading a collection of short stories. Mm. And I also wanted it to be, to work, like, and I, but I wanted people to not feel... Mm. I wanted to trick people without them feeling tricked. I didn't want people to read and be like, this isn't a novel at all. This is a book of short stories. Like, this sucks. No,
0: no, it's a novel. Yeah. Yeah. Will you write a separate book of short stories? Will you? It's maybe slightly less themed and linked. Is that something you're thinking of doing?
1: Uh, I'm writing another novel now, which is a more traditional novel.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, it's Uh, going the other way.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and then I have another one planned that is probably again sort of more episodic novel mm-hmm. um i really like this form i've discovered i'm not sure if i if i will yeah uh write a collection like i, I hope so but yeah, it's, yeah it's not one of my plans not on the immediate yeah but
0: i feel like this is so cleverly and clearly linked to your style of comedy writing you know like you're basically you'll write a routine that is a show so it's got jokes in it, and there are standalone jokes. But like a lot of comics, there's a, there's a thread that you're trying to run through a full set. And that's a bit what this is like. Yeah. and Were you aware of that when you were doing it? Like, oh, this is something that, you know, or, were they, or are they just two completely separate things?
1: No, they're like totally linked. And yeah. I think, you know, quite a lot of the lines in that were jokes that I sort of come up yeah. with and like, you know, worked out a way to make them fit. Or um or, you know, there'd be a section where I'm like, this isn't funny enough, I need to find a joke to go in here and that's, you know, what I would do with a stand up show or a comedy as well. Like, it's totally they've both really influenced each other. I think like the biggest influence from doing stand up to writing is like I want the book to be enjoyable all the way through. I don't want mm. it to have people to have to slog through a bit in yeah. order to get to uh, you know, a peak at some stage. Mm-hmm. You know, there are some bits that might be uncomfortable or there's some bits that might be... Um...
0: Well, it starts off pretty uncomfortable.
1: Yeah. Arguably. <laughs> I think yeah, the I first... really
0: liked it. I really yeah. liked it, but it was like, whoa, okay, we go. Really? Yeah.
1: The first two stories <laughs> really um, really do started off quite quite uncomfortable. I think uncomfortable and mm. enjoyable aren't, aren't
0: no, distinctions. To- and I think totally.
1: there are enough jokes in the first two stories to make it that people aren't just going to go like, Oh, that was a horrific, horrifying read. Or
0: oh, and if yeah. you know, I'm a, if so, if I can if I can recognise a person like a character, if I can see myself a tiny bit in something, but also instantly feel like, well, I'm not as sad as that character. I'm a little bit better.
1: Yeah.
0: Then that's a total winner. <laughs> you know, like if I <laughs> if I think, well, my life's not as shit as that person's, that's yeah. totally won me over. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm going to keep reading.
1: Yeah, and I think like he's. I don't think his life's. Uh, no, well, there is. Yeah.
0: In the in the in the, and I guess you know it, there's a there's a generational divide around the first story or two in your book too, where there'll be people coming at it for, that are older that just they know that that's how people form relationships and have relationships yeah. now, but it never happened to them, so they yeah. know it's sort of second hand. Yeah. Does that make sense? Have I explained that well enough? Like, you know, like there are people, younger people meet people online and that's how they meet. Yeah. And and people my age and older have learnt to do that. And yeah. when I say meet people, it could even just be having a chat with a Facebook friend. Yeah. I don't, it doesn't need to be like a, a, an online intimate relationship. But I feel like I'm still learning how to do yeah. that. It's yeah. It's not well, second nature to me.
1: And that that's like been a huge part of my life, like yeah. from... You know, I think I, I started my I got a MySpace account when I was fifteen, and from yeah. then, and that was also when I started meeting these like
0: mm.
1: musicians and and people in the music scene, and that's that's where those relationships formed yeah. was from chatting on, yeah. on MySpace, um, and then on Facebook, and then other forums as well. Uh, there was a forum called Out of Kilter in Christchurch, which I was very into, which was basically the Christchurch music scene friend group uh, yeah. for that sort of generation of about five years mm-hmm. um, but yeah it was um, in saying that with the generational thing uh, quite a few of my friends have, have given this book to their parents to read and the two responses have either been they stopped reading it in the first chapter mm. or that they read the whole thing and enjoyed it it was like, mm. <laughs> as I think getting through that that first the first couple of stories like it, it, yeah, it does get easier to read, I think, after Yeah, those first yeah, two. yeah.
0: I think so too. And I, I mean, and I, I really liked the way it started. I think, you know, I, I loved it. And, and I'm all, I, when I got to the end of it, I thought, you know, for a darker book, you could actually just about swap the first and last chapters or stories. Yeah. Because they're like, because they're starting and end points, and they could be either. Yeah. You know, they actually could be. I mean, it would be. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not, suggest- yeah. I'm not saying yeah. that in any kind of like this is what you should have done. I'm just saying a reader could imagine in their mind that and that makes it interesting and, and and as one of the things that makes that book, I think for me, live on. You know that I'll contemplate it, and read it again.
1: Yeah, and discovering where to put each story was uh, jigsaw a, j- a jigsaw stuff. Right? Yeah, and like it, they did move. Like yeah. Um, I bet the, the the final story was written and in, in, intended to be the first story in the third part and then like yeah. you know it's been rewritten to to make it the and final ending, story yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah that was my my intention is like the the, the final section to be more um, to be more him, him being a bit more productive and him yes. being a bit more um, uh, yeah like sort of having his life together a little bit more than he did but I kind of realized that. That wasn't how it worked, and then there are a few other stories that did flip places of it. Uh, with the structure of it, the first and the the first section and the uh, the third section, most of the stories have some sort of counterpart story mm. uh, to like balance it out. So debts and jobs yes, are, are yeah, two, yeah. like kind of the two obvious ones. Because yeah. I wrote, I wrote them. I wrote jobs to try and replicate Mm. the style of debts. Mm. Um, And that's why I wanted to put it at the first half. So it it actually did like have a mirror Mm. of the first story, the third thing. So it did have a mirror image, but then, you know, that, that wasn't a deal for the book. Also that
0: whole thing Mm. of um, online relationships versus in person relationships. And I guess he's more intimate and more open and more vulnerable with the person he hasn't met in real life. Yeah. Than he has, with anyone, yeah, in his real life.
1: Yeah, so like that yeah. was the dog farming yeah. syndrome, yeah, were, yeah. were two other ones that were yeah. um, that were meant to reflect on each other, and mm. and three pizzas and flatmates as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, those those stories.
0: Yeah, yeah, have yeah. have this sort of yeah.
1: reflection, and I, yeah, it took it, it took quite a lot of work to to make that happen because yeah. you know most of those stories weren't written with that intent, like Jobs yeah, yeah. was, but. Yeah. Uh, three pieces and flatmates were both written, not thinking of that, and then making them work like that yeah, took yeah. a bit of editing.
0: Yeah, wow, wow. So, so you go into the master's course, and what do you get from it?
1: Uh, so, a few things. Like, I think number one thing would be, I had a task to do that year of, yeah. of write, you know, this thesis, yeah, and having those deadlines and the deadlines of not only the end-of-year deadline, but the deadlines of sending some st- a story to my supervisor or mm. um, having something workshopped uh, that was, you know, hugely important. Um, the other thing is, like, spending a year talking about the craft of writing. Mm-hmm. Really, it not only, like, made me learn about it, but it made me more sure of my ideas of it. So, like, really like, reading someone else's writing and and having some ideas about how it should be structured or or maybe this bit was unnecessary, it made me far more sure of my own, um, my own ability to, to make something better, and sometimes they would, they would follow my advice and sometimes they wouldn't, uh, because, you know, they had their own ideas, but reading something being like, oh, I know how to fix this, Mm. um, you know, that translates to your own, your own work as well. And then that feedback was also incredibly valuable of people saying, I don't understand why he's doing this, or I don't like this, or, you know, this or, or this is really great and this works really well, mm. and, and this thing that you kind of planted in there actually, you know, is, is really clever. And those sorts of things were, were really important. And then lastly, like, just the relationships made, so uh, Annalise Jockums was in my class who Mm -hmm. wrote baby and I'm, I'm, I'm still friends with her. She, she did my launch speech at the book launch and, uh, I go to her for writing advice quite regularly. Mm. And that was amazing. Pip Adam was my supervisor for the first half of the year. And I I also have an ongoing writing friendship with her. Mm. Um, we were in a writing group together and she's also helped since then. Emily Perkins has been really amazing as well. She, um, she was my supervisor for the second half of the year, so those those sort of connections were also incredible. Oh, and then one of the big connections is Fergus marks the theses. Yeah, yeah. So he read the the book where it was at that stage. He asked me to submit to Sport um, with dog farm food game, and that that got in Sport and uh, and from there we. You know, suddenly had a sort of professional relationship, which yeah, ended yeah. up with a book, and yeah. you know that is really valuable. Doesn't happen to everyone in the course. I think people no, think that people is think it's a
0: treadmill for yeah. them. Yeah, I mean, it it almost can be in that it's a foot in the door, but by virtue of the fact that he marks the yeah work and he he has the job he has. But I've talked to him about that mm. um, for the podcast, and yeah, like it's also like he kisses a lot of frogs. <laughs> Yeah. to select a prince. And yeah. there's, yeah, it's like,
1: I'm sure there's a bunch of things that he reads that he's like, forgets about or, yeah. or doesn't um, strike a chord with him. And I think if it wasn't for that one story, Dog Farm Food Game, who he seemed to... Um, it was really strange because when I read the feedback, it almost entirely focused on what was wrong with that story. Like, because he writes sort of half a page feedback. Mm. And, yeah, and, um, he was like, this story's good, this story's good, and then spent you know, two paragraphs talking about dog farm food game and how it wasn't good. And then I submitted a different story to sport. And then he replied asking for that story. I'm like, should I edit it? And he's like, Oh no, it's fine. <laughs> so I think, yeah, the, I think the fact that he focused on it that much meant that it was, mm. you know, stuck in his head. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Fascinating. And, um, and you know, it's a character. It's obviously like, like a lot of fiction and you've been pretty open about this. Um, it's based on parts of your life and experiences, but it's a character. It's not you. Yeah. But it might have some similarities. Yeah. Whatever. How has that been relayed to you by people you know? Uh, you know, have they spotted you? Some, some and, people... And seek to clarify. I think the,
1: the main thing is people who I don't know that well have often read it as, like, entirely true. Mm. And then people that know me well, you know, have read it and, you know, they've recognised some bits, but they also know that, you know, it's not all all entirely true. Uh, and I really like playing with that idea. Like, I, yeah, yeah. sometimes I'll say this bit was true or this bit wasn't. But, like, I like...
0: Uh, like so did you kind of have that in mind? Like, did you know that was going to be the case too like when you when you publish this do you do you have a, a thought process of people are going to think this is me yeah that's fine you know I'll, I'll adapt my answers or I'll, I'll furnish them how I see fit at the time
1: yeah totally like I yeah. knew that was going to happen yeah. and it, you know it can be frustrating at times especially when people don't believe me when I tell them <laughs> yeah yeah that this bit's entirely fictional or, mm. or things like that and you know, every part of the book is fictional, because... Yeah, otherwise know, it
0: would be a memoir. <laughs> yeah, and, and he...
1: You know, we have some similar experiences, but he responds to them differently. The emotion... Like, the emotive response that he has is different to my one. Uh, he deals with them differently. It's all, like... Mm, mm. It is... It is different. It's just, like, there are some shared experiences. So I don't want people to read it and be like, Oh, that that must have been hard when you you did <laughs> yeah. <read> this thing. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's funny because it's not actually that different to stand-up in, the, in that mm. I've been telling fictionalised stories about my life in stand-up for you know, nearly a decade. But when I'm doing it in stand-up, I, I stand up and say, this is a true story and people believe that. Mm. And then now with the book, I'm saying, this is not a true story and people don't believe that. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and th- th- they're probably... You know, the stand-up does veer a bit more towards truth and and this does veer a bit more towards fiction. But they're both a mixture of both.
0: But don't you think we seek that out in the art that we absorb these days anyway? Like, we we want a connection to the person that's made it and we want that connection to be authentic and wholesome, which is a part of... I'm not, I'm not setting this up as any kind of rant, but it's a part of... The cancel culture phenomenon is that we don't seem to want to accept that bad people might make good art. Yeah. It's because we've moved along to a path where yeah we 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 want to know about the people that make this stuff and we we think if we endorse their work and then find out they're an awful person we've given that part of them a big tick as well. Yeah. I think, yeah, I, I don't... I'm not implicating yeah. you in any of that. You, you get yeah. what I'm saying, is that, is that that's created that blur that you're experiencing where your true story that's false, people can't tell, and your false story that's true, people can't tell. It's because of this belief system of, I want to be on board with every aspect of what this person's about.
1: Yeah, and I, I, I struggle with my opinion with this. Like I, you know, hmm. I, I think it's entirely a case-by-case
0: yeah. case thing, isn't it? That's like, the thing. It's
1: like, I don't really want to... Mm. enjoy the work of someone who I think is a monster but also there are some people who I do enjoy the work of that are monsters
0: you don't agree (laughs) yeah Um, Yeah. and sometimes you don't need to know like having and, and, and that isn't that making you know being complicit by turning a blind eye it's like sometimes it's not wholly relevant to know every aspect of and also a person might do something artistically that's very good and then they might like a common thing I think too is people as they age becoming more conservative. Yeah. Well, like, that doesn't mean that the funny jokes they wrote in the 70s or whenever, or the great Mm. novel or film they did, that doesn't mean that can't still be enjoyed just because they're a, you know, Clint Eastwood having his silly fucking gun chair (laughs) and, and the many bad things he's done doesn't make me think he's a despicable filmmaker. I think he's made some extraordinary films. Not all of them, of course. Like, he's made some turkeys too. Mm. It's part of what's fascinating.
1: Yeah, I think part of the fear of, you know, pretty openly being like, some of this is true, Mm. has been about... um, Because I do feel like the character in this book has some attitudes that I don't share. Like, Mm -hmm. has some attitudes, um, especially, I think, towards women. Mm. uh, And some of them... You know might be based on like m- the worst part of like impulses i've had mm-hmm. uh which i've like you know pushed down or or, or, or like gotten rid of mm. uh but i was a bit afraid that people would read that and be like oh is this what he really thinks mm. it's like it n- no it's this this is what the character thinks and i don't i don't want to read about flawless people I, nah. I, like yeah yeah and, they don't yeah exist yeah start, uh, yeah, they're
0: not interesting to to read about,
1: that's yeah.
0: for sure. It's like Or to write, I imagine.
1: Yeah. I mean I I tried to reread some of the Glass Family stories by oh, Jenny yeah, Selinger. Yeah, yeah, Which are like you know, they're not flawless people, but they are like very gifted young yeah. And it's like yeah. I did I, I found what I loved when I was, you know, twenty one reading and yeah, I like just yeah. suddenly found really boring. But I you know, I like flawed characters and I think I think uh you know the the world is kind of moving towards um, being able to have flawed characters in books. I think, yeah, uh, like like I'm thinking of like my year of rest and relaxation by is it Otessa Mosh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know how to yeah, say it. No, yeah. no, I don't either.
0: But I yeah. know the book. Yeah, yeah
1: um, that character is amazing and yeah. and horrible. Yes. And yeah, I think it's it's good that people are are coming back to being able to appreciate.
0: Right. Yeah, well, I think we're just. I think um, some of the TV movies, but particularly TV, is bringing up these kind of not flaw, not not problematic characters, but like flawed and messy characters. Mm. You know, I'm thinking of I'm only halfway through yeah. it, but that I may destroy you. show is extraordinary, and there's nothing difficult or wrong about the lead character yeah. in that. There's difficult and wrong things that happen to her. But she's certainly messy. Like, yeah. she's certainly a flawed character who who is showing uh, extraordinary strength in the way she's reacting to things. And I wasn't a fan of this show, but I guess even things like Russian Doll are um, showing people that you can have, like, well, I would argue you can have half-written characters yeah. in a show like that. But you know that you can have these messy kind of yeah, it certainly doesn't have to be all clean and tidied up. Yeah. Yeah. What What are some of the uh, you mentioned being a fan of short stories? What What have been some of the I don't want to sort of say things you've tried to aspire to or been profoundly influenced by, but what What, what are some of the elements of short story writing you've dug, if not in short story writers than in, in comedy writers or anything that you've applied?
1: Um, well, I really like a, a, a clean narrative sort of thing mm. where it's like something is contained within itself mm-hmm. um that's not saying i i also hate when something is too contained within itself so it's like kind of closes off at the very end and it's mm. like like i i hate a twist ending which yeah, explains right. the rest of the yeah like, it
0: was all a dream. It yeah. was all a joke it was all a ruse. um but, but so the actual slice of life though. yeah uh
1: i really like that um yeah. i think like one of the things I love about short stories is being able to talk about them with someone else, and like being able to zone in on like very specific things. Because if you're if you're talking to someone about a three hundred page novel, yeah, it's hard to be like this sentence is where things change, <laughs> or this is where the, the the tone changed, or this is where the attitude changed, yeah. or this is kind of and being able to like go in really deep into uh, a short story. into a short story. Well, is a, really a sentence
0: or a paragraph can be yeah. the pivot, right? Like, and it can be the pivot that's remembered.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think there are some amazing stories that I like that I love talking about. Like, um, one of them is like the school by Donald Bathorme. Mm-hmm. I think that is like such a fun story to talk about in so many ways because it has got this like this point where it changes and has got this like rising, uh, this rising sort of action going on and 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 it like sort of speeds up and then it really slows down at, at one point. And those sorts of things are just really, I find them really fun. And there are a couple of stories in the book that I've uh, tried to like actually take a, um, a structure of a mm. already existing short story and then, and then turn it into, you know, one of my own. And I think, mm. you know, then you edit it and change it and it becomes not super recognizable, but um, debts, the story in my book and then jobs, which was based on debts yeah. was meant to reflect the the school by Donald Bartholomew right, yeah, it has yeah. like kind of a list of things yes. that go wrong and then it yeah. has a sort of slower ending. Yeah. And that um, that I like I think that's quite fun to be able to really I, do that sort of
0: thing. Yeah, I really like the listing out of routines in this book and like particularly, you know, when he's getting when he's seen to be getting better and trying to establish more healthy routines and and what a what a chore that is yeah. what a, gr- a kind of a grind um, but how open he is to sort of the potential failure of that of just trying to get it right Yeah. and I thought that was ve- very um, yeah very this is a very broad thing to say but very American short story influenced well, I think like yeah. arguably twentieth century wise, there are some absolute monster American short story writers. Oh, yeah,
1: t- totally. And I think like you know Raymond Carver was yeah the first short story writer I got really into. Like I, yeah, I he had a big impact
0: on me. Yeah,
1: read all of those yeah. things, and then from him I got really into the sort of the dirty realism nineteen yeah. eighties yeah things, which um from which I discovered like Amy Hempel, who was like mm-hmm. one of my favorite writers mm. ever and um, Grace Paley who kind of yeah. preempted a lot yeah. of that stuff and yeah, yeah those
0: and even old, older things like that, Shirley Jackson the lottery is yeah, fantastic yeah.
1: yeah most things or um oh who's who's that who's the other one that writes sort of southern He's she's got the story about the guy with the prosthetic leg that comes to
0: oh not Flannery O'Connor yeah no it yeah. is Flannery O'Connor and I I was going yeah, something... to say everything that rises must converge yeah. is a fantastic
1: um, story but I read this essay by Flannery O'Connor in a I've got this like I think it's like a textbook from American yeah, university right. yeah, yeah. about um, short stories and she has this essay about um short stories and I like there's a bit of it that I that I really um love and, and, and think about all the time which is about how if somebody asks you to explain the meaning behind a short story, the only thing you could possibly do is read them the short story from yeah. beginning to end because yeah. you can't describe yes. something in yeah, less words than like with a short story you shouldn't be able to describe it in less words than it takes to tell yeah, that story.
0: Yeah, totally. And that's that's where our uh, short stories are a bit like poetry and that idea of you know, I was having this conversation recently the the best way you know, I think it's yeah. Sam Hunt said um, when people ask in school exams, what is the poet trying to say? You should just write the poem back out. Yeah, because that is what they're trying to say. And so it is that same thing. And yes, definitely that use of economy. Um, the I'm a bit of a recovering Charles Bukowski addict, and um, I actually think he. And I don't know. I don't know if I'm alone in this thought, but um, I actually think he was a better short story writer than he was a poet. I, and I, so I think his short stories are, are fascinating. They're the one thing I've held on. Like, I could, I've largely done away with his work in general, but the uh, I've done it to death, but the short stories are great.
1: Yeah, I I was quite into Bukowski. It's know, a writer-passage yeah. stuff, isn't like, it? Like, yeah, and
0: like... It's a cliche.
1: Especially when I was writing poetry about... Mm. And, like, I, I really started, like, writing these things about being an asshole and, yeah. and hating everything and that kind of thing, because I... Um, I haven't actually read any of his short stories, but I've read some of his novels Mm-mm. and I've read um, a lot of his poetry. Mm. And I his novels actually like put me off him because yeah. in his poetry I thought there was this um, feeling of you know I'm this asshole. This is these are all the horrible things I do. But there's a kind of like sadness or yes, yeah, a like, regret yeah. behind it. Yeah, and then you go and read was it post office, post office and are just awful. like. And he's just like yeah, and then yeah. I beat up this person. It just seems yeah. like like one hundred fighting bravado. and fucking and
0: drinking. Yeah, yeah. yeah like- and you know you can spot the 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 massive chinks in that armour and mm. the and all of that. But but yes, the one novel of his that is extraordinary, I think, is is Ham on Rye, which yeah. is a different kind of novel. That's the that's the sort of closest to a a memoir, and that's where he sort of examines his whole kind of upbringing and the bullying that he had and. the the ugliness that he felt. And I I, I mean, it's a long time since I read that, but I I definitely saw a a different side of him in that. But there's a a few books of short stories and there's a few hybrid poetry short story collections, but there's a book called South of No North that is just all short stories and it's fantastic. It's a great one of him and he gets in the boxing ring with Hemingway and they fight each other with their words and just sort of, so the bravado is still there, but it's different.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. that's interesting. Cause I did, I did really enjoy his poems, and then oh yeah, I mean, yeah. They had a huge
0: effect on me. But um, I'm 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 finished. Yeah, I think, I'm <laughs> I glad i glad to be over yeah. that
1: that thing. And I think, yeah, you don't have to. Show your vulnerability by showing how much of an asshole you are. Yeah, like, there are other ways. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, and like, but if a, good,
0: but if that got you to uh, in some way, I'm not saying it did with you, but maybe it did. Maybe it did for me. If that gets you in some way towards that process, then it's a becomes a a useful stepping stone to look back on. I suppose.
1: Yeah, and I think that was that was an important thing for me. Like that. Yeah, I think that whole sort of the three years where I was living in Christchurch flatting, I think I went through a lot of that, and mm. then by the end of it, I was like, "I need to, I need to change a lot about who I am because I'm, I'm not, I don't actually like this." Mm. And so, part of the move to Wellington was to like, you know, reinvent myself Re- yeah, as, yeah. as, as not an asshole. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Um. And how's that gone? I think I think it's I think it's <laughs> pretty good. good. Yeah. Yeah, like
1: I'm, I'm quite interested in this um idea of. Like, you see it happen quite often, and this idea of, like, people going back to people's Twitters from 2012 Mm. and finding, like, really problematic things and then kind of, you know, calling them out on it. And often, not all the time, but often it's stuff that the person has already worked through or already worked on. Uh, And I think, like, if you... Like, I've kind of scrubbed my blog over the internet, um, and... But if you if you looked at that, I'd say some like horrible horrible things. And I think part of it is just, like, I'm I'm not excusing the things I said. Yeah, they were yeah. wrong. They were wrong then, and they were wrong now. But it was kind of a product of my environment of yes. like, you know, I, I went to this you're striking
0: out yeah this too, this, yeah. this
1: really sort of toxic all boys school, and I and I came through of it through it feeling, um, you know, trying to fight against that system. But I ended up just like using some of the things I learned from that of like yeah. other sort of toxic masculinity things in different ways and you know being able to reflect on that and being like no actually that's not good i need to change i think is a really positive thing and somebody who's grown up with a very like sort of woke family who might all be university educated and they might all be you know be in sort of artistic circles Mm. or things like that and you, you can grow up already knowing like what's right and wrong which You know, I'm not saying that I didn't know what was right or wrong. I knew that the things I was saying were wrong were wrong. Mm. And I was still choosing to do it. But I think, yeah, being able to reflect on yourself and change who you are, I think, is a really positive thing. Yeah. I'm glad that I did it. And I'm kind of glad I had the opportunity to do it. Like, that I wasn't already, you know, I didn't start off at, like, 18, like, out of high school being like... I know all of the right things to say. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Twitter's such a problem to me around that because, you know, I feel like people will call someone out on Twitter and then if they are seen to change their behaviour as a result of that... Um, it's not good enough for the person that called it out. It's an act, it's a hoax, or they're just simply not there to see it. Yeah. So what was the point, arguably, in calling it out? Yeah. (laughs) Almost. I mean, you, you are quite, um, I, I don't comb through people's tweets ever, and I have a really, uh, casual relationship with Twitter, of all the social media, um, so I, I, I do my thing on it and I would certainly respond to people that write to me mm-hmm. and I've met some people through it and it has a positive aspect but I, I could do away with it, I'm sure. But you seem quite quite prolific on Twitter or quite regular on Twitter. How have you found it?
1: Uh, I, I like it. I have been on it since 2012. Through it I've really established a lot of uh, friendships with people in the comedy world and in the mm. writing world and and those sorts of things uh I do tweet quite a lot about politics and then I end up getting sucked into this world of politics mm. and then I eventually kind of have to usually have to do a bit of a cull and like, dr- like to dr-
0: yeah to fight your way back um, out basically yeah, yeah, yeah. like
1: so I, I think I don't I don't take it super seriously but I don't take it like, I don't only post jokes on it, but I don't mm. only post serious things. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: No, I like your <laughs> yeah. tone on it. Yeah. I mean, when I, saw, I, I, I don't really analyse much about Twitter. Um, I certainly don't do deep, deep. But I had an interesting experience happen just recently to me, was that a group of Lana Del Rey fans found reviews I wrote in 2011 and 2014 about albums of hers that I did not like... And they were pretty tough reviews and they were probably not very nice maybe uh, maybe they had a couple of things I wouldn't have said now, but I mm-hmm. still felt the same way about the albums and they really went to town on me about you know we need to report this guy and re- yeah. why you would report someone for not liking an album I don't know yeah. and and you know you need to reevaluate her career and you need to change and all this and I ignored it all because I just well, I realized i didn't have fucking bandwidth for that um but what was interesting about it was that it all of this happened right when i was finally listening to her newest album that's a few months old now yeah and that i fucking love yeah and it's like it finally just clicked for me and that's my favorite thing that happens actually yeah. with art is someone that you've never really got or cared sure. about and then it connects so i wrote the review of the new album which i love yeah and of course, radio silence. Yeah. And I'm not going to go and shove it under the noses of yeah. these people because that yeah. would be silly. But I wonder, like, in five years' time, will they find that and be pleased with it, or probably not? Like, it's it it just reinforced that weird, like, kind of uh, messages in bottles aspect of it all. Yeah. Well, and
1: I, I stand stand culture is mm. is really. You know, it's really fucked up in so many ways. Like, so much so that, like, Junkie in Australia, the, the pop culture website, have stopped putting authors' names on mm. uh, anything about pop stars. Yeah. Because they will just get attacked. Well, no look matter- at
0: this Taylor Swift thing. That's yeah. blown up. You know about that And Pitchfork. She got eight out of ten. Yeah. And they doxed the reviewer. To yeah. T- I mean, that's because they're worried about the Metacritic rating going from 90% to 89
1: Yeah, it's... It's just, it's horrible. Yeah. That kind of that kind of attitude, and that's the thing. Is like they're not gonna read a good review. No. Of of Lana Del Rey and think, oh, that's awesome. Let's promote this. They'll read it and go, good. That's what it should be. Yeah. Because they're, they're looking for people to fight. Yes. Yeah. Because they're looking to make a difference or to be recognised, and I think yeah, it's it's horrible. I don't. I well, don't also the other thing, side. I
0: no neither, and, and 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 I would have driven myself mad, and mm. and and. and and to the point of being reclusive, I think if I ever had engaged with that side, but I've also had an aspect of me that's like, well, I'll I'll stand up and be counted. Yeah. I mean, you have to for to, to be doing the stuff I've been doing, but it's about knowing when to. Well, I don't need to be stand to stand yeah. up and be counted here. I've had my say, and if people want to react to it, that's fine. But it's it's interesting because I think like what I what I also worked out through that was, absolute fanatics. Yeah, they're not actually interested in what critics think at all. They just don't want it to be bad. Yeah. So they're not they wouldn't actually even read these positive reviews, I yeah. think. Let alone read them and go, "God, I think they'd actually yeah. wouldn't read them." They, they as you say when they're looking for fights they're only looking for the negative so I don't think because I think on one level they want to know more than the critic they want that they've got the secret source they've discovered the fan yeah. and even though they're all actually just following someone else to get there yeah. like so that you know they're, they're, they're being led there like sheep on some sense but they they want to be the person with the knowledge they don't want anyone to have more yeah. knowledge than them and it's also like I think
1: I think criticism is 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 very important, but we've moved past the time when a critic can make or break an artist. Really, oh, totally. Like, yeah, like it's meaningless. People aren't yeah. are no longer picking up an. I oh. think Enemies stopped printing, yeah. but they're not picking up yeah, an Enemy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're like, oh, who's this band The Strokes. No, totally. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That,
0: that train sailed a long time. Ago. Yeah, it's yeah. like
1: they they see someone tweet about the Strokes. I guess they released really yeah. an yeah. album this year. Yeah, and then they'll listen to it on Spotify and make up their own mind, mm. or they'll you know find this community of people who are really into it which i think like i don't think that's wrong in and of itself of like a community of people that love this thing and can talk about mm. whatever with it but it does when that community gets vicious yeah is, oh, i mean I, I can remember writing
0: reviews for the newspaper back in 2001 mm-hmm. and uh i think i started 2001 And, uh, you know, you might get an album by a big band, like Weezer, when they were really big. Yeah. I got Weezer's third album, and I probably had it three months before it got released. Yeah. Now, for me personally, little old reviewer in Wellington, that's not anything, but, but in a way, that's some actual power. Yeah. Like, if you're the Rolling Stone or Pitchfork equivalent of that... Mm. there's some real power to have that at you know well it was then yeah yeah. and that power's gone it's been gone for ages it's been gone for 10 years it's probably been gone for 15
1: yeah totally... as soon
0: as forums opened up and people could um, sneak things mm. to each other yeah and hear things the, 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 the total fanatics could hear things early yeah and then certainly as soon as things like Spotify made everything available mm. on a particular day yeah I mean, I I review off Spotify now, a lot of the time. I'm not... I get get a few advanced copies still, but I review off Spotify. So I'm hearing it, like, 387th, or or, or, or on the 9,000th caller, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, like, you know, if the Rolling Stone, three days before Weezer released that album, you know, released an issue which said... This album sucks. Mm. People will be like, "Well, maybe I'm not going to spend thirty dollars mm. on this. Yeah, yeah. But it's now, just again, a completely
0: different world.
1: As we were saying with like the Netflix, yeah, there's no. no risk to listen nah. to it and making up your own mind. No. Um, I remember buying CDs when I was you know fourteen, fifteen, and just being um, hugely disappointed with them, and just being like, oh, I, "I wasted."
0: Mm. That's 30, my payday. Like that was thirty my...
1: dollars. I remember buying. Mm. Um. I remember buying a Hives CD. The Hives. Yeah. When I was, it was around the time their third album was coming out, but that one was, you know, quite expensive because it was, like, import fees or something, so, like, $35 or $39, and then, um, so I, like, found in Real Groovy a copy of their first album, and I bought it, and it was, like, $25 or something. And I put it on, and it was 19 minutes long. <laughs> and, you know, the songs were good. Although yeah, I think yeah. they had, like, one song that was about... I had one song that was about five minutes long It's yeah. like, just total filler. Yeah. And then, you know, there's only 15 minutes of good... And I just remember it being like, <laughs> I spent $25 on this yeah, yeah. album by this band because there's these other two songs that are being played on C4 that I love. And this album has... You know, some really good songs, but it's only got 20 minutes of music.
0: <laughs> Do you remember the euphoria of the opposite? Like yeah, I say I you know i I went to a couple of like midnight openings when stores opened at midnight for f- to sell the first copy in the world because New Zealand saw the sun first. New Zealand sold the first copy in the world of like a Pink Floyd live album and I went and lined up for it yeah. or or I went down at 10 o'clock at night to man more when the shop was still open I can remember buying um melancholy and the infinite sadness that you know when smashing pumpkins were massive and so that you know and it almost was irrelevant whether you liked the record or not it was the that was a bonus yeah the real euphoria the real first euphoric slice was being there in that moment and being Connected to that physical product of music and feeling like it was—it just seems comical. Yeah. But do you remember, like, man, I got that right? Give me thirty bucks, fuck! I can't believe I've got it.
1: I think the the biggest thing for me as a teenager was finding music that my friends didn't know about. Mm. That was amazing. So I think I remember I had the soundtrack to Tony Hawk Pro Skater Three. Uh, on CD, which I think I got from the warehouse, for like ten yeah, bucks or something, and yeah. it had a NoFX song on it. And this was at the time when my friends were into Blink One Eight Two and Sum Forty One. And then I like discovered this other band that's like you know still in the realm of pop punk, yeah, but yeah. was like more Dude, to the punk side. These and then, are their fathers. <laughs> yeah. And then um, I went out and spent thirty five dollars on the War on Airmen CD, which yeah, is this, yeah, like yeah. you know highly political and real. Like later talking to friends and everyone's like, yeah, everyone had that CD, but at my high school. I was the first one Yeah, it was yeah. like at my high school in my specific friend group in yeah. my year I was the first one to have that CD yeah. that was you know such, a, such an incredible moment and then later on discovering like Flying Nun yeah. and uh, and then like you know even a bit later on when I was 1920 combing through blogs and, and finding these mp3 rips of vinyl records that have never been reissued yeah, yeah. and like that kind of thing that was that was a big deal for me. Uh more so than like being the first one to to get the cd that everyone is listening yeah, to. Although yeah. Totally. I think because I was very obsessed with that, I, I have missed out on a few of the like cultural touchstones of my generation. Right. Like, um I never listened to My Chemical Romance because by the time I was Uh, that old I was like not interested in anything that was being played on the radio Mm. or C4 or or anything like that and then now I go into a party and somebody puts on Welcome to the Black Parade everyone goes crazy because it was this massive deal and I still don't know the lyrics to it and it's like I don't I never wanted to listen to My Chemical Romance although I have since then and they're, they're, I enjoy them, and they're like yeah, they're yeah.
0: Like but I you missed got, the moment, yeah, when they really
1: but, mattered. But what I what I want to experience is this like collective nostalgia, yeah. Because I was fighting against, uh, what I was I was trying to listen to nothing that other people would listen to. Yeah. I, I don't have that. Yeah, um, with yeah with many many bands of,
0: mm. of that era. Yeah, it's interesting that I mean I've always yeah I've always been quite um, mainstream, but at the same time listen to weird stuff as well I've tried to so um I've got yeah my own set of things that I buzz off about that other people couldn't give a fuck about but it is funny there are some things I catch myself still sometimes where I'm like how was this ever a thing and it's like actually it's massive I just happen to have missed it (laughs) like it's totally massive and I mean I'm a bit older but my chemical romance means nothing to me but I get but I get that they were massive for a bunch of people. And I've even read some really good writing about them. There are a couple of uh, really good American writers that have gone into bat for their stuff and written so well about it that I'm like, I almost want to have a listen, but I know it won't mean anything. The moment's yeah. gone. You know, I wasn't, yeah. there. I wasn't there for that moment. And that was music for a moment. Yeah. And listening to it now is just reliving that moment.
1: Yeah. And there are some stuff that I think I was there for that I did enjoy... like. If somebody puts on Sound of Silver by LCD Sound mm. System, like that's exciting. But although it wasn't quite that, like ge- whole generational thing, it was this very specific community got really yeah. that
0: thing. That or... was massive, though. I was talking yeah. about that with someone the other day. I was like, you know, I love that band, but I really only liked those first two records. The third one, a little bit too. When they broke up and then came back, I just didn't care about them. And maybe they're making good music, but I just don't. I just don't feel the need. But Sound of Silver was huge.
1: Yeah, I I. I think i did listen to american dream at midnight on the night it came oh, out yeah because i was very yeah. excited although like i also didn't really yeah. like their third yeah. album yeah um and then i think i listened to it once and was like oh yeah this is pretty good and then never listened yeah, to it again. yeah
0: yeah that happens a lot for me i'll, I'll do this stay up on a thursday night see what's dropping on spotify and i'll go i've got to hear this oh, i didn't really need to but i'm still i'm still caught in that pattern of like oh well you know
1: yeah um, but yeah, I think I, I do have some of those nostalgic things. Mm. It's just, it doesn't necessarily connect with everyone around me in the same way that my chemical... Like, that's the one band which I think has that has that much of a nostalgic response to people my age or, yeah. you know, within maybe like two or three yeah. years younger. I'm probably at, near the top end of that age. I think yeah, I was 16 yeah. or 17 when it came out. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. And, I mean, I always... You know, I'm always pleased that I was either too old or too cool or both for basically everything to do with new metal. Yeah. That just, I just, I well, I reviewed a lot of it, actually. I reviewed a lot of it for the paper, but Linkin Park, Limp Bizkit, and everything around that just yeah. didn't, didn't need to resonate with
1: me at all. I think I was 12 when <laughs> uh, Hybrid Theory came out. Yeah. Um, Interestingly, I never owned Hybrid Theory on CD because it was never on special and I <laughs> it was always after a bargain. Yeah. So I never bought it. I did own Reanimation, the remix yeah. album.
0: Yeah.
1: And so I know the remixes of those songs it's better than I know it. the originals and
0: yeah. Hang uh, on, was that the was that the remix one with Ch- did they do the thing with Jay-Z? They they, they was did it. Was a, it was a different Yeah, one. that was it, something else. Yeah.
1: Ain't? That was yeah. The yeah. they did the black album yeah, with Hybrid yeah, Theory. Hybrid, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and but I did own Meteora. Uh, I was I was really into it, but I think it did die off yeah. very quickly yeah, for me. Like by the time, you know, Blind Spot in Lincoln Park were the two were the two big ones. But by the time I was maybe fourteen, I I'd moved on because I had discovered No Effects. Yeah, yeah. And, and Rise Against and like these the sort of yeah. punk bands. And and then at the same time as I was going back and listening to the Velvet Underground and the Ramones and yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Iggy yeah. Pop, this yeah. big one, and yeah, those sorts of things. Where
0: they just keep coming back, and for people, don't they? Whether yeah. you know, I know, I think that first Strokes album ushered that sound back for a lot of people after a few years off.
1: Yeah, and yeah, I think I got into the Strokes. I got into the Strokes around their third album, so I was quite right. late to it. But then yeah. I went back and bought their first two, and uh, remember, that, like the White Stripes were really big, mm. uh, which I really liked them and again i went back and listened to the early stuff and yeah i was i was very into like collect like i was like i was collecting music um Mm. and it was such a you know such a huge part which is why i think when i discovered the like the live music scene i i got so into it it's like music was was like the best part of my life and then being able to like not only experience it as a consumer but like
0: as part of the community was, Mm. was a real was a real big deal what, what are your thoughts around that now, that it's live music's changed for everyone? Uh, are you missing it? Are you back out seeing things now, or are you, is there nothing for you to see? I
1: kind of stopped going to gigs a few years... Not stopped going to gigs, but I stopped going to like yeah. gigs every weekend. Yeah. Probably about four or five years ago, it sort of slowly tapered off. Uh, and I still enjoy it, but I, I don't go to a gig now unless... I know I'm going to like it, and a big part of it is, like, I would go to gigs every weekend, and every weekend I would have a panic attack, mm. and I'd keep going to it because it was my community, and I, like, I, I loved the music, but just being around drunk people, uh, or being drunk, or, like, that kind of thing, it just, like, it really wasn't working for me, and I, you know, once, once I started finding different communities like especially through theater and through uh writing and through comedy i didn't need that that collective anymore like music is still a a massive part of my life i've got like a big record collection i listen to it all the time i i I, i'm always listening to music but it's not um yeah you don't feel
0: that yeah need to connect with it on that particular visceral level anymore i feel i feel much the same way i mean i think it's hard to it's hard to know what the lockdown changed and what was already changing in some ways, I think, for, for for some of us. Like but I just you know, I know I'll go to a gig again, but I've been to so many that if I don't go again I r- sincerely don't think I'll care. I yeah. really you know, I really I have I haven't really been to one since since we've been allowed out again.
1: Yeah, you know, I haven't. it wasn't
0: like on my list of I must go and see the first live music, I didn't care.
1: Yeah, I haven't been to one since then either. I don't think.
0: Yeah, I can't. Uh, I I can't remember what the last significant gig I saw was at the start of the show. I know. I know I went to a couple of pretty cool things early on. Yeah. And but I don't almost know what they were now, which is yeah. crazy, you know.
1: And and often when I go to gigs now, it'll be because my friends are playing yeah, in them. Yeah. So like, you know, I'll go and see Hans Puckett. I'm really good friends with those guys. I'll go and see Lake South. Um, and I'll always have a good time. Yeah. Um, I like, and then there are people that I've known for a long time that I'll that I'll go and check out, you know, when I can. People like French rabbits, or, yeah. um, and then there are other people that I get very excited about seeing. Like I'm really looking forward to seeing the Beths in a month. And, yeah, but it's not it's not a um, it's not a big part of my social life anymore. That's yeah, the main, That's yeah. the main difference, I think. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've got a couple of books projects. In various stages.
1: Yeah, well, I just got funding to write a second novel. Mm. So that's the like that's the and major that's thing. And that's more
0: of a novel. Like when yeah. I say more of a novel, that's more of a traditional novel. Yeah, it's um, not an episodic thing.
1: Yeah, it's the novel was in two parts. Mm-hmm. That's that's as as separate as it gets. It's yeah. two two quite distinct parts. But uh, yeah, that's that's basically it. Uh, and I think. I'm still, I love structure, and I love form, and I'm still playing with, like, I, I'm i still really playing with this idea of reflection, which is, mm. a, you know, it's a big theme in this novel, like, the whole novel is about reflection. Mm. Um. So, and that's the thing, it's like, I think the form needs to really suit the content, and, and, in, and in this one, that sort of two-sided novel does fit the content, but I think the form, like, the form of this one did come after the content I'd written, you know, maybe like 75% of the novel before I sort of discovered what the form should be. Mm. And I think I couldn't write this book as a traditional novel. Like, I couldn't tell those same sort of stories or those things. It, it just wouldn't have worked. And I think... Because it is, like... I, I One of the reasons why I'm not super into people reading it as, like, as a memoir is because I don't think it's about... Like, my own experience, I think it's about the experience of somebody who uh, came into age post-financial crisis. Mm. That's, like, the big thing is, like, before 2008, it was, like, like there was a period of five years after 2008 where you just couldn't get a fucking job. No one could get a job. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you got a job, it would be part-time, it would be paid shit. Uh, it would just it would just do nothing and that sucked and there was also at that same time rents were going up hugely and and all of that kind of thing and mm. I think that's been really nice having people read it like that it's like it's not it's not about my experience because like a lot of the shit in it is is not about me at all but mm, mm. it's about just like being poor and not knowing if things are going to get better or not
0: Hmm. Mm. And returning to comedy.
1: Yeah, I've got. A, I'm doing a spot later on this month at a, um. At an event called Cool Story Bro, it's like a true stories yeah. thing. I'm also going to be doing a um sort of a longer form comedy show at the Nelson Writers Festival. Uh, and I, I, I will do a show in the Comedy Festival again if if they'll have me back, which yeah. I, I assume they will. I'm. Actually, quite looking forward to post this book. I think it'll be much easier to get people to come along to a comedy yeah, show. Like yeah. people know who I am now. Yeah. Uh, I think that that will be something that people will. It will be easier to sell tickets than it has been in the past, which has been like was which was the major thing that just like sucked about it because you end up spending all your time trying to sell tickets, when the fun bit is writing and performing and doing yeah, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. So I will at some stage. Uh, I don't, it's not a major priority for me, mm. but it's, and, it's coming. And I was talking about this
0: with, with Freya when she came around here, because you mentioned her, you guys launched the books together, her book uh, of poetry and your novel. You got to kind of put the book out into the world, have a launch, and then it wasn't that much after that that the world went into lockdown, or the New Zealand world went into lockdown. Um, <coughs> so you, the book went out, there were some early reviews, and then everyone disappeared into lockdown was that kind of quite good <laughs> i imagine that was probably quite nicely insulating like at least it got to have its moment oh uh, yeah which it, is awesome and then you got to kind of hide from if the, you know it's it's been well reviewed yeah. and well received yeah. but if there was any backlash it's kind of like a writer's dream to then go back into the burrow
1: yeah uh it was really cool that like i'm so glad it came out before lockdown mm, like mm. And it did have that that few weeks where it's just like lots of media attention, lots of mm. there were like some events and all those yeah. sorts of things, which was like really cool. Uh, but then it was kind of strange because I had like these festivals that I've been booked for and mm. these other plans mm. that I've been doing and like these been asked to do a do a bunch of other things and they all just fell apart and it was weird going from this time where there's like felt like there's heaps of hype and heaps of heaps of stuff going on and then. Nothing, and then nothing, like mm. absolutely nothing, and you also couldn't buy a physical copy of the book at that time. Yeah, true. Because all the bookstores were closed, so people were like sending messages, being saying like, "Oh, well, where can I get this?" And yeah, like, well, you can't yet. Yeah, you have to. There was an ebook, so a lot. Well, some people read the yeah, ebook, yeah. but yeah, yeah, a lot of the. It was strange going to that, and then it kind of felt like that was the. That was the end of it, um, like, because the world would kind of move on and more books would be released. But um, lockdown, and the world returned to normal much faster than I thought it would, mm. and, and these things are coming back again now. So like, I've got a number of festivals
0: and events yeah, coming so up. Yeah, so, so sort of, it's sort of had a second life, like a second run at, yeah. at publicity and, and, and a second wave of being discovered, which is kind of quite, in a way, it, it's kind of like a perfect situation for a new book yeah and that you not that you could ever plan for that
1: yeah like i i one of the things i really feared about it was that it would come out and it would get a decent response and then two months later no one would yeah be talking about it because you see that happen all the time with books and records and yeah um you know i think that's happened to me with with like shows i've done as well like where it's like people enjoy it at the time, but it never...
0: Oh, totally. It
1: ...never reaches that critical mass and no. then, like, a year And, that, later, again,
0: that's a numbers game. Yeah. Like, we're just not big enough to, for it yeah. to really happen, right?
1: Yeah. That's, that's kind of, like, an interesting thing because I've been going to this festival in Australia um, for the past few years called the National Young Writers Festival, and the Australian... The Australian, like, publishing world has just so much more potential for growth than it does in New Zealand because... Mm like, most of the publishers there, or a lot of the publishers there have these connections to overseas publishers, or they've got people that sell rights to overseas, or or things like that, and that's, um, it's not really a thing here, so, like, part of me would like to try and push to get this published overseas somewhere, but I just, like, I don't, I don't know how to do that, I need to find an agent or something, Yeah, yeah. and then I'm just wondering if it's, worth doing that with this book or waiting for the next one but I yeah it would be nice to nice to be able to keep keep going with it and you know sometimes those things take time like um Baby by Amy's yeah, yeah. like you know it had its thing in New Zealand and then you know, maybe eighteen months later, or maybe even two years later, it was published in Australia, and then it was published in the UK, and I think it's now being published in the US.
0: I still haven't read it, but I've yeah. heard nothing but good things about it. I really want to read. It. I mean, I've got a copy. of it. Yeah. I need to read
1: it. That's interesting. You've heard nothing but good things about it because but, it's one of the most divisive books I've. Right. I've like heard of when I've talked to people. like Yeah, anybody, but I've like, talked yeah. to
0: people like yeah. you and Pip yeah.
1: and then,
0: You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's who you talk to. Like. Yeah,
1: like <laughs> I think it's an absolute masterpiece. Yeah. But, um. You know, it is a weird book. Like, yeah, yeah. Um,
0: no, I definitely heard that Yeah, term, but that, that's great. Like, yeah. bring on a weird book. And I, th- I
1: think that's what we were talking about earlier about, like, people needing characters to be good, moral, yeah, likeable yeah. people, like, because they're not in, right. in that book, and, and they are... Uh, well, I think they're likeable. I like them. Well, yes. I like, I like at least one of them, but yeah, yeah. Um, people hate them. People hate the characters so much they cannot... See, it and then, see like, i love that i love yeah. i
0: mean i i'm a massive fan of uh i mean i don't know his, how his stuff tracks now but those neil LeBute plays that got turned into movies in the late 90s and early 2000s were just mind-blowing to me like in the company of men i don't know if you've seen that no. it's the aaron eckhart plays a character in that that's so despicable that he said i think for four or five years afterwards he would regularly get like predominantly women, because this is like one of the most misogynistic, awful men characters, male characters you could have. He'd get women attacking him in the street, you know, just just not making the distinction that yeah. he was an actor that played a role. Yeah. And I, I love the, like, I don't, I love the power of that performance. He's so awful. It doesn't for a second make me think he's a cool person. He's awful. But that's, it's just so perfectly written. Yeah. Yeah. I love that stuff. I I love finding like despicable characters. You can still get behind them. It doesn't mean you're endorsing them. You're getting behind them because you're recognising an ugliness about that's maybe deep within yourself or certainly within people you know and encounter, but also you're just kind of like giving the big thumbs up to really, really great, brave writing and great performing. Yeah. Well and like
1: the world got behind breaking bad. Mm. Why can't they get behind that in other forms like
0: yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it? What is it about? Because I'm watching Breaking Bad now, and it's a bit like listening to My Chemical Romance now, probably. Like, I'm I'm not at all disliking it, but I just never watched it at the time. And I'm pretty much exactly halfway through its run. Like, I'm getting towards the end of season three. And I don't know if I'll watch it all or not, because it's just okay. Yeah. Nothing about it is terrible, but I think it was a TV that existed majorly in in its moment that there was nothing arguably nothing quite like it now there's heaps of things like it
1: (laughs) yeah i i remember when it was like the last the last season of that and and everyone is going crazy and the same with game of thrones yeah i I didn't i never watched either i'm really bad at watching tv shows i i watch half a season and, and kind of stop yeah but i did regret not being able to be part of this like I do thing, a little bit too exciting, sometimes, yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, some things like, I, w- I watched The Sopranos at the time it was happening for the most part and then I fell away from it, but then I caught up with it just after it finished. And I feel like that was really rewarding and and was a really good show and I was happy to have watched it and I'll probably one day watch it again. But I don't feel that about a lot of those must-see TV shows. I wonder what makes a thing just reach that level of... And as you say, they can be quite despicable characters, but people are on board with it. And why isn't that the case with some other things? Like, sometimes, that's it, it, absolutely fascinating to me. But, yeah, Breaking Bad, it's it's fine. It's good. But I just don't get the, man, this is mind-blowing. I just don't get that about it. Yeah. But I couldn't say it was terrible. I'm not, I'm not entirely wasting my time, but I just don't feel a charge from it.
1: Yeah, I just can't. Watch something with that long episodes, that many. <laughs> no, well, that's yeah, the yeah, thing. Like, break, this is a big, oh, yeah. this is a
0: big undertaking to bother going yeah. this far back with yeah. something like. If I if someone tells me about a good show that I've missed, I look it up. If it's got more than two seasons or more than ten episodes in a season, yeah. I just have to believe them. I'm not going, you know, I'm not going in to try and unpack it in any way. I'm just like, good. I'm glad you had a good time.
1: And I feel like a lot of the shows that I have gotten behind that. Uh, I watch them as they come out. I get really excited about them. They they get bad. Like um, yeah, well, I loved was, season one of the good place. Yeah, and then yeah. by yeah. the end of it, I was just like, I didn't. I was care. thinking about
0: that the other day too. I thought season two was quite good. Season yeah. one was great, and then season three and four just really bad. And I yeah. stuck with that one because I I don't know why. I guess because it was easy. Yeah. It's like a very easy thing to do, um, short and accessible on some level, but it really got bad. Yeah, and people just celebrating the idea that it was good because it finished. It's like, yeah. well, it's good news that it finished because it was terrible in the end.
1: Yeah, and I think, I think that happens a lot with those feel good comedies mm. where they run out of steam. They run out of steam, and the characters become so beloved. Yes, that they can't grow anymore because mm. that changes who they are and they're widely loved so they well, become a, parodies of themselves. It's interesting
0: isn't it because allegedly these are sitcoms but the situation that the comedy takes place in becomes irrelevant yeah. and they outgrow it and it's entirely about the fact that people don't want to let go of the characters.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that happened like Parks and Rec I thought was really good for you know the, yeah. the middle the middle yeah. group of seasons and then yeah, agreed. Yeah, eventually it's just like yeah, the par- self-parody yeah. is
0: the common thing, I think. Yeah. And I guess overall, the British tend to do better at nipping things in the bud a bit quicker. Like, they do tend to do two and three seasons instead of six and seven.
1: Yeah, although what I like about American sitcoms is a longer storyline. Like, yeah, totally. That's, I think, often with a, with British sitcoms, they, they've, they've got a very nice self-contained 21-minute yes. Thing. and sometimes there'll be a little bit that happens up to the season finale. But uh I think it's nice the yeah. episodic format over yeah. a season where it's like there are stories that go through an episode and stories that go through a season and stories that go through multiple seasons. I do mm. I do like that. Uh but yeah, I it would be nice I think it'd be good to feel like those things were planned out from the beginning. Like it was always gonna end after season three with this ending because that's that's the whole and that that's how much time it needs for this story to be told
0: but i remember watching the first two episodes of lost when they when it screened yeah. on still like terrestrial episodic yeah. tv and i got about halfway through the second episode and i was like oh i know what this is yeah this is like a a a pick a path book but actually the the director is in charge mm and we're just gonna be strung along for five or six seasons. Yeah. I'm out. And I'd never watched it again. And I don't I don't say that as any like I'm smarter than the game, but I remember that being the moment when I recognised a massive, largely disappointing change in T V that seasons existed to purely sell another season and that yeah. was it. And I know I know on some level that's always been the game because yeah. there's a, a commercialism and capitalism involved in in making television but it seemed to become the priority right at that moment
1: yeah i my favorite show at the moment is search party
0: yeah that's Um, really good
1: and that just finished season three yeah i've Uh, only
0: seen the first two i must jump into three but i've liked that yeah yeah
1: i i thought season again season one of search party was amazing and i thought i thought it did really well with um with both season two and three of like You know it had a related but like different Mm. story right Mm. and then um and then they've already made season four and that's when it's going to end and i think that's a that's a good um format but even at the same time season one of search party was incredible and the other ones have been really good
0: there was this program called casual did you watch that no it's the best comedy program i've seen in ages and no one seems to have watched it which makes me reinforces that i have (laughs) dubious taste but I'm really pleased, actually, that it's just like a little, you know, I just feel like it was, it wasn't at all must-see television, otherwise more people would have seen it, but it didn't have a bad, it pretty much didn't have a bad episode. Yeah. And it had a four-season run, and it was wrapped up really nicely, but without being too sweet.
1: Yeah.
0: And the characters were largely unlikable, but totally relatable. They weren't despicable. They yeah. were just flawed and messy fucking great but yeah. but obviously a hard sell yeah because i haven't talked to anyone that's watched it or enjoyed it like no one's buzzing about it but it must have had its audience i mean it's a yeah like, they had
1: several seasons it had it. four
0: seasons and it's got um you know a couple of decent named people in it like michaela watkins is in it and she's in a lot of things so you know but anyway it's it's good like it, it was but it, but it's one of those things it's 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 not going to be, you know, So I don't think it'll get discovered as like, this is the show you all missed at the time. But I feel like it's one of those ones that will have, it'll be relevant whenever anyone gets to it. Like, I don't, yeah. It'll have a long long enough shelf life.
1: And that's, again, like, not hitting the critical mass it needs to suddenly become a, a hype machine, right? Like,
0: Well, it felt like, you know, I think you'd probably dig it because it felt like, writing-wise, it felt like, as close as TV's felt to like connected short stories. Each yeah. episode felt like a really nice slice of life. It didn't it didn't have the sticky sweet sitcom moral, but it didn't have the the desperate Seinfeld kind of we're going to completely ignore that. So if a sticky sweet moral turned up occasionally, that was okay. Yeah. Um but they were very much slice of life things but you could see the connections so they yeah. the seasons it did progress and without repeating itself
1: yeah i think that's just the thing is like f- like i really like structure in, in books and in and in like in books is where i see it the most and and in um, comedy shows i really mm. like a well-structured comedy show which is interestingly like why i'm not always into american netflix specials because uh often an american netflix special is all of these people's good jokes up until this point yeah yeah and i think this it is changing and people are starting to have a more structured approach which i think is when the net blew up yeah and everyone was like it's changed comedy forever it's like in a way it did yeah. but also in another way it just did what a good comedy show yeah, does totally. Like. and that's a big difference between an american style comedy show and like the edinburgh style comedy show where you do make in for the Edinburgh uh, Fringe like you make a new show every year, and yeah. that show has a has a theme and it has a arc and it has a story yeah, behind totally. it, and it isn't just like these five minute bits that are kind of strung together, which is often how the, the big American um, ones are.
0: Yeah, the Nanette was great. The most disappointing thing about it was the 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 movement behind it telling everyone it was a revelation it was like just just watch it it's very good it's yeah fucking good but we don't need to be like the movement behind it was like a superfluous director's commentary for, yeah you know audience driven director's commentary. it's like man i'll cheerlead for that show too but i'm not going to tell people that you know i'm not going to give people Watching tips on how to approach it. Just fucking watch the thing. Yeah. It's very good.
1: And like a comedy show which has a serious moment three quarters yeah. of the way through that yeah. makes you think differently about what's happened before that. That's not new. That happen- If you go to the comedy yeah. festival, That's what happens. that happens That's in right. every yeah, good yeah. show.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, like Rose Matafeo's Horned yeah. Dog yeah. had that exact same structure. It yeah. was so fucking good.
0: James acaster has yeah. been doing that stuff forever. Yeah. Stuart <laughs> Lee has been doing that stuff in his way forever. Like people have been doing it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, and I think part of the um, part of the that that twist in in the net was a commentary on comedy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is kind of what made it different. Yeah. Um but not um I like. I think structurally it's it was still very similar and then suddenly all these people who have never watched uh, like they've they might have watched some comedy specials Mm-mm. on on Netflix but they've never gone and seen shows in the Comedy Festival or their um They've never really paid attention to
0: yeah, yeah. the
1: craft of a show. they like, oh, it's changed comedy forever. And it's like, well, you don't do you know, know what, what comedy so, was. Do you
0: know what's really disappointing yeah. is the best example of the person that was turning up and doing the work and putting in a new show and, and subverting the laughs of comedy for ages was Louis C.K. But then he got cancelled and also... Either parallel to that yep. Or whatever His comedy also became Utterly shit Yeah <laughs> You know like So I'm not going in To defend him But there was a moment there Where like his comedy or not At least he was turning up And doing new shows All the time Yeah And and so I used to want to think Well he's a great example Of that But the material Just got worse and worse And uh, as per our Twitter conversation Conversation around Twitter you, you know you grow And develop yourself And you go yeah. Well actually this isn't that yeah. funny that this is happening
1: yeah Pussy's
0: just a general dirty word now too
1: yeah and like I think <clears throat> that's that's the thing is like Louis C.K. said at one stage he's like I'm going to make four shows in four years or mm, mm. or something like that and he did develop in making I think if you are going to say I'm going to make a show in a year you do end up writing around a theme because it depends on yeah, yeah. what's happening in your life in that year or you know for the comedy festival in New Zealand you have to submit in October with a title mm. And then suddenly this title is in your head because nobody's written their show in October. No, no, it, no. They've just written
0: um, a pun around comedy or their name. Yeah, or and, then,
1: and then suddenly, like, this title becomes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, the show and everything comes off yeah. it. And you do end up with something which generally sticks to a theme. And once you've kind of got a theme, it's really easy to add a narrative in. Yeah. Um, especially, like, like, I kind of developed a, a like, a structure for a comedy show which i then made my show dignity from and i felt like it was just like it was so easy to do where it's like you start off with something which like seems nothing to do with the show and then then you like here's the show here's what it's about and then you start doing some comedy kind of about that theme and it kind of draws on and you can you can throw in some other things and it's it's okay and then about three quarters of the way through you go actually what I was talking about at the beginning of the show was to do with the show the whole time and everyone goes oh, that's amazing yeah. and then you end with a big thing <laughs> and then, and then and that, that's the narrative structure of the show <laughs>